The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. What's up, Mark? How are you? <laughs> Good. I'm Have great. you done a podcast before? I've done podcasts before. No? Nothing with this reach, though, oh. so that's exciting. You can't think about that. Yep. Nope, not at all. can't think about the reach part. Yep. Um, first of all, very nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. You, you're like you're a tech OG. Like you know, when it comes to like the tech people, you're you're like, you know, you're at the forefront of it all. I mean, you were one of the co-founders. You were one of the co-creators of Mosaic, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. What was it like before there were web browsers? <laughs> so, how do you know you know a time before web browsers? Like, I do. So, I'm an OG now, but when I first started, I thought I missed the whole thing. Like, really? I thought I missed the whole because I missed the personal computer. I missed the whole thing. You missed the ad, the in, in original use of the personal computer. Yeah, the personal computer, and then before that, all the other computers that you know came before that. So, the computer revolution kind of happened over the 50 years right before I showed up. What was the first personal computer? The first personal computer the first true personal computer they were like kits in the early 70s that you could build um the first interactive computer that you could use the way you use a pc was all the way back in the 50s it was a system called plato at the university of illinois where i went and it was uh, it was really there's a great book called the uh, it's like the bright orange glow and it was a it was a screen black screen with only orange graphics wow. um and they, they built it by hand at the time and they had the whole thing working and so they, they, they like these ideas are all old ideas. They had email, like they they had all these ideas kind of way back when. It just they had email, yeah, they had email and messaging and vi- multiplayer video games and all that stuff back in the fifties. Really? Yeah, yeah. It just was. It just was in a, only in a couple places. It so was really hard to get it working. It was expensive. When you say multiplayer video games, it wasn't like a graphic video game. They had like very simple, very simple graphics. Very simple, like space war games or whatever. I mean, really. Remember like asteroids? Yeah, yeah, like that quality of stuff, or even even simpler than that. So, what year was asteroids? Asteroids would have been in the late 70s, 77, 78, 79, mm. somewhere in there. Go, uh, Pong, Pong was 74, I think, which was the big, the first console, the first uh, arcade video game was Pong. Yeah, we had one somewhere around that time, and I remember thinking it was the most crazy thing I've ever seen in my life, that you could play a thing that's taking place on your television, you could move the dial and the thing on the television would move. I mean, it was magic. Yeah. It's so crude and dumb yeah. for kids today. They would never believe the the impact that it had yeah. on people back then. So before the one you had in your TV set, that was later on. Before they had the the, the arcade game, the console in the in the arcade. And the, the the story there is is crazy. Is this guy Nolan Bushnell, who's the founder of this company Atari, that basically created the video game industry, and he he developed this this game Pong. So he, and he literally built one. Like they, they had no idea if anybody would want to play a video game at that point. So they built one. They built this this console they put it in a bar in mountain view in in silicon valley um and uh the guy the owner of the bar called up you know three days later and he's like you know your your thing is broke like come get it um and you know nolan's like all depressed and he he goes in and and he realizes the 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 thing it's so jammed with quarters it was so popular right that people just like kept jamming (laughs) quarters in it right and it literally like it couldn't take any more quarters and 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 literally he was like aha you know proof people actually want to play video games like that's how like even that was not obvious at the time yeah, I remember the first video game arcades. Yeah. And like a complex game was what was that there was like a Dungeons and Dragons game. What was it called? 
Dragon Quest or something there was like a, that? There was the first Laserdisc game, which had like video clips. Yes. It's probably the one you're thinking about. Yeah. It, what was yeah, it yeah, called? Something, something like that, yeah. Do you remember that game, Jamie? Do you know what I'm talking he, about? He's, he's way too young. And there was like a move that you had to do really quick. And if yeah. you did the move correctly, you would go on to the next level. If right. you didn't, like a, yeah. a, a video graphic would play where you, yeah. you got killed. Well, that was a, it was a big, I think if it's the same one, it's a big deal because it was the first game that had video clips. Yes. And that, that was a really hard thing to do. And they had like a giant, the, the had like a giant uh, platter, laser disc platter yeah. inside playing these clips. And again, it was it was like it existed. It was just really hard to make it work. Did you find it? That, I think that's Yeah, that's probably it. it. Let me see what it looks like. Yes, that's oh, right, exactly right, right, what it was. Right. Dragon's, Lair. <laughs> Dragon's Lair. So if you did it correctly, you would get this video where you went through all the right moves and you got to the place, but you, you would have moments where you had to make a quick decision, and if you made the correct decision, like here, like jumping to the flaming ropes, yep. if you made the correct decision, you would get across. Right. But if you screwed up, they would play a video of you dying. <laughs> right, exactly. And that was super sophisticated back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a marvel at the time. And I remember the, like the early days of the arcade, yeah. where video arcades were around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So look, all, all this stuff is super obvious in retrospect. Like it's just yeah. it's obvious in retrospect. Everybody wants to play games. They want them at home. All this stuff. Like at the time, it was not obvious, and that's kind of how all this new technology goes. It's how the internet was in the very in the very beginning. It's like, well, I don't think anybody's going to want to do this. Was the, right. was the overwhelming view. And then, and, and by the way, you know, not all new technologies work, but the ones that do, people look back and they're like, well, that one must have been obvious. And it's like, no. <laughs> was it the people at IBM? Who was it that mocked the idea of a personal home computer? Yeah, there was a lot of that. Well, there was a famous statement. The, the founder of IBM is this guy, yeah. Thomas Watson Sr., and he, he did this, he famously said one of these things, maybe he said it, maybe he didn't, but he said there's no need for more than five computers in the world. And, <laughs> right, and the, theory, the theory was basically the government needs two, right? They need like one for defense and one's for like civilian uh, use, and then there's like three big insurance companies, and that's like the total market, right? And that's, that's all anything needs. Um, <laughs> And then there's a famous letter in the HP archives where the, some engineer told uh, basically the founders of HP they should go in the computer business. There's an answer back from the CEO at the time saying, you know, nobody's going to want these things. So, like, yeah, it's really – it's tenuous. I mean, the famous New York Times wrote a review of the first laptop computer that came out in, like, 1982, 1983. And the review is – you read it, it's just scaling. It's just like, this is so stupid. I can't <laughs> believe these nerds are up to this nonsense again. This is ridiculous. And then you, re you realize, like, what the laptop computer was in 1982. It was 40 pounds. It was like mm. a suitcase, right? And you, and you open it up, and the screen's, like, four inches big, right? And, and so, like, the whole thing's slow, and it doesn't do much. And so – if you just like take a snapshot at that moment in time, you're like, okay, this is stupid. But then you know you project forward. And it's, by the way, the, the people who bought that laptop got a lot of use out of it because it was the first computer you could carry. Like that turned out to be a big deal. Well, it's probably very valuable now, right? Yeah. Just as a you know novelty yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah. But like th this idea that we got from like that's just absurd to literally everybody carrying a supercomputer in their pocket in the form yeah. of a phone in 30 years. You know. So quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, really fast. When you were first getting on computers, so like, how old were you when you first started coding and screwing around on computers? Well, I started coding before I had a computer. Yeah. <laughs> so I taught myself. So I'm I'm like the perfect. I'm like right in the middle. Of, I'm like the perfect Gen X age. I'm like about turned fifty one. I was born in 1971. Um, the, uh, the 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 home computers started coming out in like 1980 81, where like normal people could buy them. They got down to a few hundred dollars. You hook them up to your TV set. Um, and so I, I knew I wanted one, but like I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't, you know, I had What did they run on? I had, like, 
I hadn't mowed enough lawns yet to have the money to buy one. What did they run on, like software? Yes. Oh, so Microsoft actually, they had a very simple operating system, and then they had uh, Microsoft actually made a, it was called BASIC at the time, which was the programming language that was built in. And so when you say this is a home computer, but yeah. like, who was buying them, and what, was, what, what function did they serve? Yeah, well, that was a big debate. The big debate at the time actually was, are these things, do these things actually serve any function in the home? And sort of the, the, the ads would all say basically, like, basically it's because the ads are trying to get people to, like, basically pitch their parents on buying these things and be like, well, you know, tell your mom she can like do like she can file all of her recipes on the computer, right? They're like, that's the kind of thing they were reaching for, right? And then your mom says, well, actually, I have a little card, you know, three by five card holder. I don't actually need a computer to file my recipes. So there was that. Um, a lot of it was game. A lot of it was games. A lot of it was video, video games. And then you know, kids, you know, like like me, like to learn how to code. You know, first it's like play the game, and it's like, well, how do you actually create one of these things? And then you know, businesses started to get a lot of you know, when the spreadsheet arrived, that was a really big deal because that was something that people, it was something people capability that business people didn't have until they had the PC. How much data storage did those things have back then? So my first computer had four kilobytes of storage, four thousand bytes, <laughs> four thousand <laughs> bytes of storage. And so you would write, you would write, you could code, you could write code, but you had to, you had to, you had to write code. You had to know exactly what was happening in basically every single slot of memory because it was, it, you just, there wasn't a lot to go around. And did it use a floppy disk? Or like... uh, so later on, they had the floppy disks. Um, That's new. In, in, when the beginning, they used cassette players. Whoa. Uh, so, okay, so this is the beginning. So if you're, you're a kid with a computer in 1980, you, you, you have a cassette player. And so they, they would literally record programs as like audio garbled, you know, electronic sounds on a cassette tape. And then it would read it back in. But you had this like tension. You had this tension because cassette tapes weren't cheap. They were fairly expensive. And the high quality cassette tapes were quite expensive. But you needed the high-quality cassette tape for the thing to actually work. But you were always tempted to buy the cheap cassette tape because it was longer, right? And so you would buy the cheap cassette tape, and then your programs, your story programs, then they wouldn't load, and you'd be like, all right, I got to go back and buy the expensive cassette tape. Wow, how did they yeah. work through sound? Like, how yeah. did that work? Yeah, so they just they, they code into basically basically beeps. You know, you could you could you, you could say it wasn't music. You definitely couldn't dance right. to it, but it was it, you know it was, it was beeps of different different uh, different frequencies. And that's how it stored data. Yeah, and that's how it stored data. Yeah. Is that, that's what it looked like. <laughs> a, wow. So that's an old. This is an old. This is this is a that's a computer from a company called Wang, which is a big deal. So that company was a huge deal. That was one of the first big American tech companies of of this generation, Wang Laboratories. Yeah, so this is this is the one of this is not the exact one I have, but it's a lot like it. And so yeah, there's the cassette Radio Shack TRS-80. This is I think a original Model One. Was there a feeling back then when you were working with these things that this was going to be something yeah. much bigger? Yeah. So the thing that they did, the thing the thing that they got right on the personal computer was you loaded the personal computer. If you remember, it, was, it would say you would show the thing, and then and it would say ready, and then there would be the little cursor. Yeah, <laughs> ready, and then a little cursor, right? And the little cursor sitting there blinking, and and basically what that represented, if you were of a mind to be into this kind of thing, that represented unlimited possibility, right? Because you're, it, it basically it was it was inviting, right? It was basically like, okay, ready for you to do whatever you want to do, ready for you to create whatever you want to create, and you could start typing, you could start typing in code, and then there were all these mag, you know, at the time magazines and books that you could buy that would tell you how to like code video games and do all do all these things, but you could also write your own programs, and so it was this real sense of sort of inviting you into this amazing new world and that and then that's what caused a lot of us kind of of that generation to kind of get pulled into it early wow yeah and so as you're watching this evolve around you and you're a part of it as well like when 
so when you, when when did you guys first make Mosaic? What year was that? Yeah, so that started in '92, and Nine, then so really not kind even of hit, Windows '95. Hit critical mass in Windows. Yeah, so yeah, that was pre Windows '95. Mm. So it's Windows 3.1 was new back then, and Windows 3.1, Windows 3.1 was the first real version of Windows that a lot of people used, and it was it was what brought the graphical user interface to personal computers, right? So the Mac had shipped in '85. But they just never sold that many Macs, right? Most people had PCs. Most of the PCs just had text-based interfaces. And then Windows 3.1 was the big breakthrough. So the Mac got its user interface, the graphic user interface, from Xerox, right? Well, so there's a long. This goes to the, the, the backstory. So, the, so the Xerox had a system. Yeah, Xerox had a system called the Alto, which was basically like a proto, sort of a proto Mac. Apple then basically built a computer that failed called the Lisa, uh, which was named after Steve Jobs' daughter. And then the Mac was the second computer they built with the GUI. But the story is not complete. The way the story gets told is that Apple somehow like stole these ideas from Xerox. That's not quite what happened because Xerox, those ideas had been implemented earlier by a guy named Doug Engelbart at, at Stanford who had this thing at the time called the Mother of All Demos, which you can find on YouTube, where he basically in 1968, he shows all this stuff working. And then again, if you trace back to the 50s, you get back to the Plato system that I talked about, which had a lot of these ideas. And so it was like a 30-year process of a lot of people working on these ideas until, you know, basically Steve was able to package it up in the Macintosh. I need to see that video. The mother of, the all, mother of all demos. demos. Yeah, so this is a legendary. This is a guy. Yeah, this is a guy, Doug Engelbart. Well, this is going to be more important than it looks. So I'd like to set up a file. So I tell the machine, all right, I'll put to a file. And it says, well, I need a name. I'll give it a name. I'll say a sample file. So you see on the right, that was the first I'll mouse. So Doug Engelbart so invented the mouse, among other things. And that's the first mouse there oh, on the right. So, wow. so he's showing the first mouse in use in the first computer system ever made. It was a three-button mouse. It was a three-button mouse. Um, so and, could it copy and paste and yeah, all that stuff yeah, with those had, three buttons? He had word processing. He had all these. He had all kinds of interactive. He was one of the first four nodes on the Internet back around that time. So he was even doing email back then, I think, or shortly thereafter. What? Here he's writing code. He um, was doing email in 68? Yeah, 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 very early on. Wow. So like a sort of an intranet email, so you'd have to be attached to the the network to receive emails? Like. How yeah. did it work? It could either be, and yeah, you could. You had there were private email systems early on, but also he was on the original internet. The original internet in the U.S. started with only four computers on the internet, and one of them was his. Oh. Um, so there were four nodes on the original on the original network map, and so he, he was kind of plugged into this. And stuff where really. was that? This is it says it was something called Stanford Research Institute. So is, did you have to be local to to be a part of it? Did it have yeah. to be connected by wire? Oh yeah yeah yeah. And, and in fact, like it's the, not like it went through a telephone wire or anything like another. You know like. You know, you know, like dial up or anything yeah. like that. Well, so it, it, early on, they were the kind of the same thing. So actually, early internet was actually integrated with dial up. And so early email, early internet email actually was built. It didn't assume you had a permanent connection. It assumed you would dial into the internet once in a while, get all the data downloaded, and then you'd disconnect because it so was too expensive was to leave the lines open. One original server? Like one large server? Well, the, the the internet idea was all the computers are peers, right? So there's, okay. no, there's no single node, right? And so there's just four computers that talk to each other, which was the basis of what the internet is today. Four computers talk to each other now it's four billion computers talk to each other but it was that same idea and how did they store things individually like did you have access to each individual computer's data or did they have a collective database if they, you know they had a combination of, I mean now this is very original these these were very simple systems as compared to what we have today so these were very basic implementations of these ideas but they, they would have they had very simple what's called store and forward email uh, they had very simple what's called file retrieval so if there's a file on your computer and you wanted to let me download it, I could download it. They had what was called Telnet, where you could log into somebody else's computer and use it. 
So you are messing around with this stuff, and you guys create. Was it the very first web browser, or the first like used by many people web browser? Yeah, it was the first. It was a productized. Um, it was the first browser used by a large number of people. Um, it was the first browser that was really usable by a large number of people. Um, it was also one of the one of the first browsers that had integrated graphics. The the actual first browser was a text browser. Uh, the very first one, which basically was a which was a prototype that Tim Berners Lee uh, created. So, it, but it was just it was very clear at that point. Like we we now have the we have we have Windows, we have the Mac, we have the GUI, right? We have graphics, like, and and then we have the internet, and we need to basically pull all these things together, which is what Mosaic did. And GUI is graphic user interface. Graphic user interface. What yeah. is a GUI? And and it, and again, it sounds like it's not. We, we've lived with the GUI now for th thirty years. Most people don't remember computing before that. It sounds like right. obviously everything would be graphical, but it was not obvious at that point. Most computers at that point still were not graphical, and so it was a, it was a big deal to basically say, "Look, this is just going to be graphical." Yeah, most computers were using DOS. DOS, yeah, that's yeah. right. And so when you created this, when you and whoever you did it with created Mosaic, what what was that like? To what was the difference in like functionality? Like, what was the difference in what you could do with it? Yeah. Well, so it so <laughs> it worked really well. Um, so it, like we po we polished it. Like we got it to the point where like normal people could use it because it was a black. You could do this stuff a little bit before, but it was like a real black art to put it together. Um, so we got it to the point where it was like fully usable. We made it it's called backward compatible, so you could use it to get to any information on the internet, whether it was web or non-web. Um, and then you could actually have graphics actually in the information, right? So so web pages before Mosaic were all text. You know, we, we added graphics, and so you had the ability to have images, um, and you had the ability to you know, ultimately have you know, visual design and all the things that we have today. Um, and then later with Netscape, which followed, then we added encryption, which gave you the ability to do business online, right, to be able to do e-commerce, right? And then later we added video, we added audio, and, you know, it, it just kind of kept rolling and kind of became what it is today. When you look at it today, what do you remember your thoughts back then as to where this was all going? So it was impossible to predict what it's you know it's of just course. it's played out at a much higher level of scale with many more use cases than we would have thought but it seemed pretty obvious to us that people would want this kind of thing because at, at the very basic level, is ability for anybody to publish anything, right, text yeah. or video or audio, right? Um, and then it was the ability for anybody to consume anything, right, and the ability for all computers in the world to connect with each other and that you wouldn't need centralized gatekeepers. You wouldn't have, you know, TV networks that could control what was on. Anybody could produce, you know, whatever they want to do. And, and so that, like, that basic idea seemed like a pretty good idea. Um, it, it hit an incredible wall of skepticism. Like uh, all of the experts, right? Uh, they're all on the record. They're all, if you read the newspapers, magazines at the time, 100%, it would be like, this is stupid. This is never going to happen. Nobody wants this. This is, <laughs> this is never, you know, this is never going to work. And if it does work, nobody's going to want it. Uh, over and, all the big companies were completely dismissive. Um, it was just like, there's just no way. This is just too crazy. It was the same, same pattern. It's these, these crazy kids are at it again. You know, okay, sure, they've been right, you know, every other time. You know, not every, <laughs> they've been right many other times. You know, it's like, but this one they fucked up. On. Electricity worked, you know, telephone worked the railroads worked okay light yeah light bulb worked but like you know this computer thing is stupid this internet thing is stupid you know now we're hearing it today you know crypto blockchain you know web yeah. three this stuff is stupid you know every new thing it's just this constant wall of doubt um and you know and frankly in a lot of its fear and a lot of it's you know just kind of people getting freaked out but um, your unique perspective of yeah. having been there early on with the original computers having worked to code the original web browser that was widely used like and seeing where it's at now, does this give you 
a, a better perspective as to what the future could potentially lead to? Because you've seen these monumental changes, like firsthand and been a part of the actual mechanisms that forced us into the position we're in today, right. this wild place. Right. In comparison, I mean, God, go back to 1980. Yeah to today and in and there's no other time in history where this kind of change i mean other than catastrophic natural disasters or nuclear war yep. there's nothing that has changed society more than the technology that you are a part of yep. so when you see this today and you do you have this vision of where this is going well, yeah, it was, it was complicated, but so many, many parts to it. But yeah, look, I, look, one thing is just like people have tremendous creativity, right? P people, people are really smart, and people have a lot of ideas on things some that they people. can do. Some I people, I can introduce you to people. folks that would change <laughs> your scale. <laughs> some people, that is, yes, yes, I won't, I won't argue with that. But uh, look, there's there are, a spectrum. <laughs> there are, there are, there are a lot of smart people in the world. There are a lot more smart people in the world than have had access to anything that we would consider to be, you know, modern universities or you know anything that we consider to be kind of the way. That we kind of have, you know, smart people, you know, build careers or whatever. There's just a lot of smart people in the world. They have a lot of ideas. If they have that capability to contribute, right? If if they can code, if they can write, if they can create, you know, it, it, they will do it. Like they will figure out. I mean, the most amazing thing about the internet to me to this day is I'll find these entire subcultures. You know, I'll find I'll find some subreddit or some YouTube community or so go down some rabbit hole, and there will be you know, 10 million people working on some crazy collective you know thing. Um, and I, I just didn't, I, you know, even I didn't didn't know it existed. And, and you know, people are just like tremendously passionate about what they care about, and they they fully express themselves. And and I, yeah, it's just it's it's fantastic. And I and I feel you know we're still at the beginning of that. Like we're still you know most people in the world are still not creating things. Most people are just consuming. And so we're we're still at the beginning of that. So so I know that's the case. Um, look, it's just going to keep spreading. Like so, so there's a there's a there's a concept in computer science um, uh, called Metcalfe's law and that, that basically expresses the power of a network mathematically. Um, and and it, it, the formula is x squared. Um, and x squared is the formula that gets you the classic exponential curve, the, the curve that arcs, you know, kind of up as it goes. Um, and, and that's a process that's basically a, an expression of the, the value of a network is all of the different possible connections between all the nodes, which is which which is x squared. And so it, and so quite literally, like every Every additional person you add to the network doubles the potential value of the network to everybody who's on the network. And so every time you plug in a new user, every time you plug in a new app, every time you plug in a new, you know, anything sensor into the thing, a robot into the thing, like whatever it is, the whole network gets more powerful for everybody who's on it. And, and the resources at people's fingertips, you know, get, get bigger and bigger. And so, you know, th this thing is giving people like really profound superpowers in like a very real way. Holy shit. Right. And so it's, it's just going to get, because the internet's going to get wired in everything, right? Every car, right? Every, every, yeah. everything, every door, everything's going to have a chip. Everything's going to be connected to the network. Like the whole world is going to get like smart and connected in a you know in a in a, in a, in a very different way, um, and, and then look you know we still have these legacy you know we're we're still in the world you know we're we're, we're at like that weird halfway point right where we still have like broadcast TV. Right, and we still have like print newspapers. Right, and we still have these like old, older things. Radio. We still have radio. Like the, these things still exist. They haven't gone away, and there's still you know pretty significant you know attention and dollars and prestige associated with these things. But I I, I think it's obvious what's going to happen, which is all of that's going to transfer to the internet. Right? Yeah, 100 percent of it. Right, and so we're 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 still only halfway or partway you know in, into the transition. It's it's going to get a lot more extreme than it is now. What do you what do you anticipate to be like one of the big factors? If like if you're thinking about real breakthrough technologies and things that are going to change the game, is it some sort of a, a human 
internet interface, like something that is in your body, like a Neuralink type deal? Is it something else? Is it augmented reality? Is it is it virtual reality? What what do you think is going to be like the next big shift in terms of the symbiotic relationship that we have with technology? Yeah, so this is one of the very big topics in our industry that you know people argue about. We sit and talk about all day long, trying to figure out like which you know which startups to fund and projects to work on. So I'll, I'll give you what I what I kind of think is the case. So the the two that are rolling right now that I think are going to be really big deals are, are AI. Um, on the one hand, and then cryptocurrency, blockchain, Web3, sort of c combined phenomenon on, on the other hand. And I, I think both of those have now hit critical mass, and both of those are going to move uh, really fast. So, so we should talk about those. And then right after that, you know, I think, yeah, some combination of what they call virtual reality and augmented reality, VR, AR, uh, some combination of those is going to be a big deal. Um, then there's what's called Internet of Things, um, right, which is like connecting, connecting all of the objects in the world online, and, and, and that's now happening. Um, and then yeah, and then you've got the really futuristic stuff. You've got the you know Neuralink and the the, the brain stuff, and you know all, all kinds of all kinds of ways to kind of you know have the human body be more connected in, into these environments. That that stuff's further out, but there are very serious people working on it. So let's start with AI yeah. because that's the scariest one to me. This Google engineer that yeah. has come out and said that he believes that the Google AI is sentient because it says that it is sad. It says it's lonely. It starts communicating, and you know. Google is there. It seems like they're in a dilemma in that situation. First of all, if it is sentient, does it get rights? Right. Like, does it get days off? Yep. It, 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 I had this conversation with my friend Duncan Trussell last night, and he was saying, "Imagine if you, you know, if you have to give it rights. Mm -hmm. Like, is it? Does it get treated like a human being? Like, what is it? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you. I'll make it even a step harder. What if you copy it? Right. Now you've got two of them. <laughs> well, that was what I said to Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil was talking at one point in time about downloading consciousness right. into computers, and then he believes that inevitably will happen. Right. And my thought was like, well, what's going to stop someone from downloading themselves a thousand times? Yeah, of course. Right. With some Donald Trump-type character just wants a million Trumps out there, just yeah. out there doing speeches. Yeah. Like, what what would stop that? Yeah, exactly. So so let's let's start with what this actually is today, which is I, I think you know, which is very interesting, not well understood, but very interesting. So what what Google and this this other company, OpenAI, that are are doing these kind of text the text bots that have the you know the the, the been in the news. What they do, it's a, it's a, it's a program. It's an it's an AI program. It, it's it's basically it uses a form of math called linear algebra. It's a very well known form of math, but it uses a very complex version of it. And then basically, what they do is they've got complex math running on big computers, and then what they do is they have what they call training data. And so what they do is they basically slurp in a huge data set from somewhere in the world, and then they basically train the math against against the data to try to kind of get it up to speed on how to interact and and do things. The training data that they're using for these systems is all text on the internet, right? So, and, and all text on the internet increasingly is a record of all human communication, right? That's all the text on the internet. All the text on the internet. So, how does it capture all this stuff? Well, that, so Google Google's core business is to be the is to do that is to be the crawler. You know, famously their mission: organize the world's information. They they actually pull in all the text on the internet already to make their search engine work, and then that's that's. And, and then, then you, the AI just scans that. And the AI basically uses that as a training set, right? Um, and so and and basically just just basically choose through and processes it. It's a very complex process, but like choose through and processes it, and then. 
then the AI kind of gets a converged kind of view of like, okay, this is human language. This is what these people are talking about, you know, and then it has all this statistical, you know, when, when a human being says X, somebody else says Y or Z, or this would be a, a good thing to say or bad thing to say. For example, you can get emotion, you can, you can detect emotional loading from text now. So you can kind of determine with the computer, you can kind of say this text reflects somebody who's happy because they're saying, oh, you know, I'm having a great day versus this text is like, I'm super mad, you know, therefore it's upset. And so you could have the computer could get trained on, okay, if I say this thing, it's likely to make humans happy. If I this, say this thing, it's likely to make humans sad. But here's the thing, it, it, it's all, it's all human-generated text. It's, it's all the conversations that, that, that we've all had. And, and so basically you load that into the computer and then the computer is able to kind of simulate, right, somebody else ha having that conversation. Um, but but what happens is basically the computer is playing back what people say, right? It, it, right. It's not. It's not. Nobody. No, no engineer. The, the, the guy who went through this and did the the, the whistleblower thing. He, he even said he didn't look at the code. He's not. He's not in there like working on the code. Everybody who works in the code will tell you it's not alive. It's not conscious. It's not having original ideas. What it's doing is it's playing back to you things that it thinks that you want to hear based on all the things that everybody has already said to each other that, mm. that, that, it, that it can get online. And in fact, there's all these ways you can kind of trick it into basic. Like, for example, you can have it. He has this example where he like has it where basically he said, you know, I want you to prove that you're alive. And then the computer did all this stuff through it's alive. You can do the reverse. You can say, I want you to prove that you're not alive. And the computer will happily prove that it's not alive. Mm. And it'll give you all these arguments as to why it's not actually alive. And of course, it's because... It the computer has no view on whether it's alive or not. But it seems like in in with with the, this is all very weird. Yes. And for sure we're in the fog of life. If it's not life, it's in this weird fog of like what makes a person a person. Like what makes an intelligent thinking human being that knows how to communicate able to respond and answer questions? Well, it does it through cultural context. It does it through understanding language and having been around enough people that have communicated in a certain way that it emulates that. Right. Yeah. So this is the real question. So th this is where I was headed. The, the, the real question is, what does it mean for a person to think? Right. Like, that's the real question. And so and so let's talk about, there's something called the Turing test, right? Which yeah. is a little bit more famous now because the, the movie they Alan made about, made about yeah. Alan Turing. So the Turing test basically, in its simplified form, the Turing test is basically you're sitting in a computer terminal, you're typing in questions, and then the answers are showing up in the screen. There's a 50% chance you're talking to a person sitting in another room who's typing the responses back. There's a 50% chance you're talking to a machine. You don't know, right? You're, you're the subject. And you can ask the entity on the other end of the connection any number of questions, right? He, will, he or she or it will give you any number of answers. At the end, you have to make the judgment as to whether you're talking to a person or talking to a machine. The, the theory of the Turing test is when a computer can convince a person that it's a person, then it will have achieved artificial intelligence, right? Th then it will be as, as smart as a person. But, but that begs the question of like, okay, like how easy are we to trick? Right. Right. Like, and, and in yeah. fact, and, and, so, and so actually it turns out what's happened, this is actually true. What's happened is actually there have been chatbots that have been fooling people in the Turing test now for several years. Mm. The easiest way to do it is with a sex chatbot. Because <laughs> they're the most gullible when it Specific, comes to sex. Specifically to men. Of course. <laughs> of I course. bet women are like way less gullible. Women probably fall for it a lot less. But men, like you get a man on there with a sex chatbot, like it, yeah. the man will convince himself he's talking to a real woman like pretty easily even when he's not. Right. Um, and so just think of this as a slightly more, you know, you could think about this as a somewhat more advanced version of that, which is, look, if, if this thing, if it's an algorithm that's been optimized to trick people, basically, to convince people that it's real, it's going to, it's going to pass the Turing test, 
even though it's not actually conscious, meaning it has no awareness, it has no desire, it has right. no regret, it has no fear. You know, it has none of the hallmarks that we would associate with being a living being, like much less a, a, a conscious being. And so, so this is this is the twist, and this is where I think this guy Google got 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 kind of strung up a little bit, as, or held up. Um, is it, it, the the computers are going to be able to trick people into thinking they're conscious, like way before mm. they actually become conscious. And then there's just the other side of it, which is like we we have no idea. We don't know how human consciousness works. Like we we have no idea how the brain works. We have no idea how to like we have no idea how to do any of this any any of the stuff on people. The the most advanced form of medical science that understands consciousness is actually anesthesiology, because they know how to turn it off, <laughs> right? They know how to click you know yeah. power off, and then you have to power back on, which is also very important. But right. like they have no idea what's happening inside the black box, and and we have no idea. No, nobody has any idea. So so this is a parallel line of technological development that's not actually recreating the human brain. It's doing something different. It's basically training computers on how to understand process and then reflect back the real world. It's very valuable work because it's going to make computers a lot more useful. For example, self-driving cars. This is the same kind of work that makes a self-driving car work. Yeah. Right? So this is, this is very valuable work. It will create these programs that will be able to trick people very effectively. Right. And so so there, for example, here's what I would be worried about, which is basically like what percentage of people that we follow on Twitter are even real people. Right. What yeah, well, Elon is trying to get to the bottom of that right now. He's trying to get to the bottom of that, you know, specifically on, on that on that issue from the business. But just, just also think more generally, which is like, OK, if you have a computer that's really good at writing tweets, if you have a computer that's really good at writing angry political tweets or writing whatever absurdist you know, humor or whatever it is like. And by the way, maybe the computer is going to be better at doing that than a lot of people are. You know, you could you could imagine a future Internet in which most of the interesting content is actually getting created by machines. You know, there's this new system, Dolly, um, you know, that's getting a lot of visibility now, which is this thing where you can type in any phrase and it'll create you computer-generated art. Right? Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. 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 Like, they've done some with me. It's really yeah, weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, Chase Lepard, he's got a few of them that he put up on his uh, Instagram. Well, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a very similar thing. So basically what they do, what, what the, the and Google has one of these and, and, and OpenAI has one of these, what they do is they pull in all of the images on the internet, right? So if you if you think okay. about if you go to Google Images or whatever, just do a search, you know, on any topic, it'll give you thousands of thousands of images of you, whatever. And then basically they pull in all the images. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> exactly. How bizarre. Yeah, so that's so that's, so that's AI generated art. So that's AI generated art. That's a different program. That's just basically doing yeah, sort of psychedelic art. The 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 Dolly ones are basically they'll they're sort of composites. Um, where they will give you basically, a, it's almost like an artist that will give you many different drafts. Yeah, that's okay. another one of me. Yeah. So uh, he, the first one, he, go back to that, please. Yeah, you just had it up. It's a, what does it say? It said, uh, what is it? Joe Rogan facing the DMT realm, insanely detailed, intricate, hyper, hyper masculinist, miss dark, elegant, ornate, luxury, elite, horror, creepy, ominous, haunting, moody, dramatic, volumetric, light, 8K render, 8K post, hyper details. So. They say that, and then they enter all this stuff in, and this is what comes out. And this is what comes out now. Holy shit! Yes. Okay. So first of all, yes, it's incredible. Like that's amazing. It's an original work of art that is exactly the spec that. Why'd they make my nose look like that? <laughs> Doesn't really look like that, right? <laughs> not, not today. It's it's a little off. I'm. A, I would say if that was an artist, like I think you got the nose wrong. And you made my job. Well, it's bit. referencing these other artists. If you see at the end, it's actually yes. re it's referencing. So it's, it's probably pulling in portraits, right, of other people from those artists and it's using wild. it to do a composite thing, right? But exactly. the fact that it can make yeah. art. Now, 
but see what it's doing, right? So it's very impressive. I mean, the output's very impressive, and the fact that it can do that is impressive, but it's being told exactly what to do. Yes. Like, it didn't have the idea that it was going to do that. It was told, it was, it's, it's following instructions. Right. Right. So it's not sitting, it's not sitting there like a real artist dreaming up new artistic concepts. Right. But right? here's the question, because like, yeah. you, you, were, you were saying this before, that it can trick people into thinking it's yeah. real. How do we know what's, what is alive? So like, that, but this is yes, the question. Like, if the it question. Can like, what is a human consciousness Correct. interacting with another human consciousness? Yep. I mean, it is data. Yep. It is uh, the understanding of the use of language, inflection, tone, the vernacular that's used in the, whatever region you're communicating with this person in to make it seem as authentic and normal as possible. Right. And you're doing this back and forth like a game of volleyball, mm -hmm. right? Yep. This is what language is and a conversation is. If a computer's doing that, yep. well, it doesn't have a memory, Well, but it does have memory. Yeah. Well, it doesn't have emotions. Is that what we are? I don't know. Because if that's what we are, then yeah. we're all, that's all we are. Well, because the only difference is emotion and maybe biological needs, like the need for food, the need for sleep, the need for you know the, for touch and love and all the, the weird stuff that makes people people, yeah. the emotional stuff. But if you extract that, right. the the normal interactions that people have on a day to day basis, it's. It's pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so here'd be the way to think about it is like, what's the difference between an animal and a person, right? Like, why do we grant people rights that we don't grant animals rights? And of right. course, and of course, that's a hot topic of debate yes. because there are a lot of people who think animals should have more rights. But but fundamentally, we do we do have this idea. We have this idea of what makes a human distinct from a horse or a dog, mm -hmm. right? Is 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 self awareness, right? Is a, a, a sense of self, a sense of self being conscious, right? I, you know, I I Descartes, I think, therefore I am, right? Right. And so at least we, we have this concept, we have this philosophical concept of consciousness. As being something that involves self-awareness, like the computer is, the computer is, is like I told you, the computer is quite capable of telling you it has self-awareness. Yeah, it's also quite capable of telling you it doesn't. It doesn't care. Right. <laughs> it has no opinion on whether it has consciousness or not, and that's why I'm confident that these things are not conscious. They're not alive. But are these things are it, they? It's just a pro, It's just a, it's a pro, It's it math. It's a program. It's a right. program. Yeah. But at what point in time right. does the program figure out how to write better programs? Right. At what point in time does the program figure out how to manifest a physical object yeah. that can take all of its knowledge and all the information that's acquired through the use of the of the internet, yeah. which is the basically the origin theme in Ex Machina, right? Right. right. The, the super scientist guy, he's yeah. using his web browser, his yeah. his search engine to scoop up all people's thoughts and ideas and he puts them into his robots. Yeah, which is basically what basically what what, what, what these companies are doing. <laughs> hopefully hopefully with a different result. Um, well let me bring there's another topic. Word, hopefully. There's, there's another there's another topic. A friend of my friend of mine, Peter Peter Thiel and I always argue he always argues is like it's like basically it's like, he's like, look, US you know, civilization is declining, you can tell because all the science fiction movies are negative. Right? Like it's it's all dystopia. Every nobody's got hope for the future. Everybody's negative. And my answer is just like the negative stories are just more more interesting. Right. No, nobody nobody makes right. the movie with like the happy AI, right? Like it's just right. not a, there's no drama in it, right? So, so anyway, that's why I say hope, hopefully it won't be Hollywood's uh, dystopian vision. But he, well, here's another question though: in the nature of consciousness, right? Which is another idea that D Descartes had that I think therefore I am guy had is he had this idea of mind body dualism, which is also what Ray Kurzweil has with this idea that you'll be able to upload the mind, which is like okay, there's the mind, which is like basically all of this, you know, some level of software equivalent coding something something happening and how we do all the stuff you just described. And then there's the body, and there's some separation between mind and body where maybe the body is sort of could be arbitrarily modified or is disposable or could be replaced or mm. replaced by a computer. It's just not necessary once you upload your brain. 
And of course, and this is a relevant question for for the a, for the AI because of course the AI Dolly has no body, you know, GPT three has no body. Right. Well, do we really believe in mind body? Do, do we really believe mind and body are separate? Like, do we really believe that? And what the science tells us is no, they're not separate. In fact, they're very connected. Right. And a huge part of what it is to be human is the intersection point of 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 of, of brain and mind, and then brain to rest of body. For example, all the medical research now that's going into the influence of gut bacteria on behavior, mm. right? And the and the sort and the role of viruses and how they change behavior and like and, and so basically like I, I think the most evolved version of this, the the most sort of advanced version of this is like whatever it means to be human, it's some combination of mind and body. It's some combination of logic and emotion. It's some combination of mind and brain. It leads to us being the crazy, creative, inventive, destructive, innovative, caring, hating people we are, right? The sort of mess, yeah. the mess that is humanity, right? Like that, that's, that's amazing. Like that, that you know, the, the, the four billion years of evolution that it took to get us to the point where we're at today is like amazing. And I'm just saying like, we don't know, we don't have the slightest idea how to build that. Like we're, we don't even understand how we work. We don't have the slightest idea how, how to build that yet. And that, that's why I'm, I'm not worried that these things like somehow come alive or they start to. Yeah. But, see, I'm m much more worried than you yeah. because my concern is not just how we work. Cause I know that we don't have a, a great grasp of how the human brain works and how the consciousness works and how we interface with each other in that way but what we do know is all the things that we're capable of doing in terms of we have this vast database of human literature and accomplishments and mathematics and all the different things that we've learned all you you need to d have is something that can also do what we do and then it's indistinguishable from us so like our idea of that of our brain is so complex, we can't even map out the human brain. We don't even understand how it works. But we don't have to understand how it works. We just make something that works just as good, if yeah. not better. Yeah. And it doesn't have the same like cells. Yeah. yeah. But it works just as good or yeah. better. Yeah. It just we can do it without emotion. Yeah, yeah. Which might be the thing that fucks us up, but also might be the thing that makes us amazing, but maybe only to us. Right to the universe, where like these emotions and all these biological needs, this is what causes war and murder and all the cr cr and thievery and all the nutty things that people do. Right. But if we can just get that out, then you have this creativity machine. Right. Then you have this this force of constant, never-ending innovation, which yeah. is what the human race seems to be. Yeah. If you could look at it from outside, I always say this: that if you could look at the human race from outside the human race, you'd say, "Well, what is this thing doing? What's well, making better stuff? Mm -hmm. All it does is make better stuff. It never goes. Ah, we're good. Right. It, it just constantly new phones, better TVs, faster cars, jets that go faster, rockets that land. That's all it ever does is make better stuff." Collectively, and even materialism, which is a thing with people, oh, it's so sad. People are so materialistic. What's the best fuel for innovation? Right. Materialism. Right. Because people get obsessed with wanting the latest, greatest things, and you literally like sacrifice your entire day for the funds to get the latest and greatest things. You're giving up your life right. for better things. That's what a lot of people are doing. That's their number one motivation for working shitty jobs is so they can afford cool things. Right. Well, so then we get to a deeper philosophical thing, which is, would you get the good of humanity without the bad of humanity, right? Would, would you get all of the creativity and all of the energy? Like, but it's only good to us. 
to the universe? Is oh, it really good? Well, the universe. Okay, so it, 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 I mean, look, people have different views on this. My view is the universe is uncaring. Yeah. Right. Like exactly. It, it, yeah, I think so too. The universe does not really does not give a shit. Right. right? So good or bad, like it's only. I, I think it's all, it's but relative I relative in our neighborhood. But, but yeah, but I think therefore it's. I mean, to me that to me that to me that's a simple question to answer is it's it's all in only through our eyes. Right. We're we're the only thing that matters because the universe the universe really doesn't care. Right. By the way, Mother Nature doesn't care. Like no nobody cares. Nobody right. cares but us. And so we 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 get the you know privilege, but we also get the burden of being the ones who have to define the standards. Yeah. That we have to we have to set the rules. And of course, the, the project of human civilization is trying to figure out how how, how to do that. Yeah. Um. It, well, look, the, the computers are going to get good at doing a lot of things. That that said, just let me be clear: a computer or a machine or a robot that does something really well is a tool. Right. It's not it's not a it's not a replacement. It's not an augment. It doesn't make humanity irrelevant. It doesn't this. It doesn't that. In fact, generally what it does is it makes everything better. And we could we can talk about how that happens. Um, but it's a tool like it's it's a thing. It's it's a hammer. Right. Like, and, and like anything else, like, look, these are tools, tools, hammers. Look, hammers have good uses and bad uses. Right. I, I'm not a utopian on, on technology. Like I think that, you know, many technologies have destructive consequences. Um, but, you know, fire, you know, <laughs> had its good and its bad sides. Yeah. Um, you know, people burned to death at the stake have a very different view of fire than people who have you know, a delicious meal uh, you yeah. know, of roasted meat. People killed by a Clovis point are probably not that excited about the technology. Yeah, exactly. People, you know, look, people driving in the car love it. The people who run over by a car hate it, right? Yes. Like, you know, right. Uh, and so, like, it, it, technology is this double is this double-edged thing, but the, prog the progress does come, and, of course, it nets out to be, you know, historically at least a lot more positive than negative. Nuclear weapons are my favorite example, right? It's right. like, were nuclear weapons a good, a good thing to invent or a bad thing to invent, right? And the overwhelming conventional view is they're horrible, right, for obvious reasons, which is they can kill a lot of people, they, they, and they actually have no overt kind of you don't there, there was, the Soviet Union used to set up nuclear bombs underground to like uh, basically uh, develop new oil wells. Not a good idea. They stopped doing that. Um, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They used, to, they use, really? used to use nukes you for. Mind pulling this microphone just a little bit for there you go. Yeah, sure. Okay. Like that. Did the, what? Explain how they did that. Oh yeah. Well, they would. They have like I don't know what it was. Where they'd be opening up a new well, or they'd be like trying to correct a jam in an existing well, and so they just you know they're like, well, you know, what do we have that could like you know free this up? And it's like, oh, how about a nuke? So so they try. Oh, I'll give you another example. Um, <laughs> The U.S. government had a program in the 1950s. The Air Force had a program in the 1950s called Project Orion, and it was um, for um, it was for spaceships that were going to be nuclear powered, not nuclear powered with a nuclear engine, but they were going to be a spaceship, and that would be like a giant, basically lead, um, basically dome, and then they would actually set off nuclear explosions to propel the spaceship forward. What? <laughs> and so they were they didn't they never built it, but but they thought hard about it. And I go through these examples to say these were attempts to find positive use cases for nuclear weapons, mm. basically, and, and we never. Did. And so we'd say, so you could say, look, nu nukes are bad. We shouldn't invent nukes. Well, here's the thing with nukes. Nukes probably prevented World War III. Right, right. Nukes. If if, you're, if if at the end of World War II, if, if you asked any of the experts in the U.S. or the Soviet Union at the time, are we going to have a war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in Europe, uh, another land war, right? Um, between the, the you know the, the between the between the two sides, you know, most of the experts very much thought the answer was yes. And in fact, the U.S. to this day, we still have troops in Germany, basically preparing for this land war that that, that never came. Um, nuclear weapons. The deterrence effect of nuclear weapons, I, I would argue, and a lot of historians would argue, basically prevented World War III. So. So, so the pros and cons on these technologies are tricky, but they usually do turn out to have more positive benefits than negative benefits in most cases. I just think it's like it's hard or impossible to get new technology without basically having both sides. Without you know, it, it's hard to develop a tool that can only be used for good. And for the same reason, I think it's hard for humanity to progress in a way in which only good things happen. Right. Right. But aren't we looking at the pros and cons of nuclear weapons to a very small scale? I mean, we're looking at it from 1947 to 2022. Yeah. That's such a blink of an eye. Yeah. We could still fuck this up. We could really screw and it up. The consequences are so grave. 
that if we do yep. fuck it up, it's literally the end of life as we know it for every human being on Earth for the next 100,000 years. Having said that, there were thousands of years of history before 1947, 1940. There were thousands of years of history before that, and, and the history of humanity before the invention of nuclear weapons was nonstop war. Yeah. Right? No, it's nonstop war, but it's a different thing, right? It was pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah, uh, no well, doubt. So the original form of warfare, like if you go back in history, the original form of warfare, like the Greeks, the original form of warfare was basically people outside of your tribe or village have no rights at all. Like they don't count as human beings. They're right. to be, they are to be killed on sight. Right, and then the way that warfare happened, like for example, between the Greek cities, and this is at the like the heyday of the Greeks, Athens and Socrates, and all this stuff. The way warfare happened is, we invade each other's cities. I burn your city to the ground. I kill all your men, and I take all your women as slaves, and I take all your children as slaves. Right, so like, <laughs> that's pretty apocalyptic. Yeah. Right. Um, and but isn't so, that kind of what's going on in Russia right now? Well, so the, the, so the, the, in Ukraine, Russia, Russia is the, this is the big question. This is the big question for the U for the United States on Russia right now, which is like, okay, what's the one thing? We know we don't want. We don't want nuclear war with Russia, right? We, right? we know we don't want that. What do what do we want to do? U.S. government, what does it want to do? Well, it wants to arm Ukraine sort of up to the point where the Russians get pissed off enough where they would set, start setting off nukes. And, and and this is the sort of live debate that's happening. And and it's just, it's, it's a real debate. You, you could look at it and you could say, well, nuclear weapons are bad in this case because they're preventing the U.S. from directly interceding in Ukraine. It'd be better for the Ukrainians if we did. You can also say the nuclear weapons are good because they're preventing this from cascading into a full land war in Europe between the U.S. and Russia, right. World War III. And so it's a, it's a complicated calculus. I, I'm just saying, like, I don't, I don't know that things would be better if we returned to the era of World War One, right. right, or of the Napoleonic Wars, or of no, probably not, probably right? not, or of the, the, the wars of the Greeks. Is, has this deterrent? Has the nuclear deterrent? It, it, is it i guess it's it's what we have is a bridge and the nuclear deterrent is a bridge for us to evolve to the point where this kind of war is not possible anymore yeah. like we have evolved as a culture where whatever war we have is nothing like World War One or World War Two. Well, there's there's an argument there's an argument in, in sort of defense circles that actually nuclear weapons are actually not useful. They they seem useful, but they're not useful because they can never actually get used. Right. Th that it's a hollow threat. Right? Unless you're Putin. Right. Yeah. It, it, it basically, it's like okay, like no matter what we do to Putin, he's never going to set off a nuke because if he set off a nuke, it'd be an act of suicide. Because if we nuked in retaliation, he would die. And like, and nobody's none of these guys are actually suicidal now. Right. But with hypersonic a, weapons, that I, doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Right. So now we have hypersonics. Right. Exactly. So now we have yeah. hypersonics coming along that that changes the playing field right that's a that's a non-nuclear weapon with potentially you know very profound consequences and so yeah look but I mean, they have nukes that are hypersonic they have yeah but yeah. The, they also have non they, they have that right. but they also have non-hypersonics and so like one of the questions on uh, non-nuclear hypersonics is for example is it the first weapon that can take out aircraft carriers and, mm. and if so that changes the balance of power right. so anyway there's all these questions but right however <laughs> my point at least was even even nuclear weapons like you can point to this actually very positive outcome um and so most of these technologies when they look scary up front as you get deeper into them people are creative people figure out ways to use these things in ways that end up actually being very positive hopefully yeah right so how did we get on this tangent we got on this tangent talking about whether or not artificial life is life and how do you decide whether it's life now when you're if you if it gets so calm what if it's not sentient but it behaves in every way a sentient thing does yeah. how do we decide that it's sentient like this right. this engineer that makes this distinction yeah. 
You're saying he's done it erroneously. Well, so what he's, if you read the interview, he's, he's an interesting guy. He's got a colorful, oh, by, yeah. colorful backstory. What, what he literally says, and if you're the, he did a long-form interview for White Wire magazine, what he literally says, he said two interesting things. He said, one is, I, I didn't look at the code. Like, I don't, you know, he is a programmer, but he said, I didn't, I didn't work on the code. I didn't look at the code. It wasn't my job. I don't actually know what this thing is doing. You know, so first of all, it's not, so he's not making an engineering evaluation, right? He's observing it entirely. He's doing what we call black box observation. He's observing it entirely from the outside. Um, and then the other thing he says is he's making his, his evaluation is made in, the, in his role as a priest. <laughs> right? What kind of a priest is he? Um, so you should look that up. Um, it's a, it's a, um, I, I, uh, um, some people might call it a cult. Um, I don't want to be judgmental. Um, it's a, it's a creative, it's a, it's a creative non-traditional um, uh, uh, religion um, that he apparently is fully ordained in. Um, uh, more power to him. Um, you know, a priest of a marginal whatever, maybe we don't take that seriously, but now we get back to the big questions, right? Which is like, okay, like historically religion, capital R religion played a big role in the exact questions that you're talking about. And traditionally, we, you know, culturally, traditionally we had concepts like, well, we know that people are different than animals because people have souls, right? Um, And so, you know, we in the sort of modern evolved West are, you know, a lot of us at least would think that we're beyond the sort of superstition that's engaged in that. But we are asking these like very profound fundamental questions yeah. that a lot of people have thought about for a very long time. And a lot of that knowledge has been encoded into religions. And so I think the religious philosophical dimension of this is actually going to become very important. I think we, we as a society are going to have to really take these things seriously. In what way? Like what? In what way do you think religion is going to play? In this? Well, in the same in the same way that it in the same way that it plays in the same way that it plays in basically any so religion historically is how we sort of transmit ethical and moral judgments, right? Um, and then you know we basically sort of you know it's the sort of modern intellectual vanguard of the West a hundred years ago, whatever, decided to shed religion as a sort of primary organizing thing, but we decided to continue to try to evolve ethics and morals. But if you ask anybody who's is, if you ask anybody who's religious, what is the process of figuring out ethics, ethics and morals? They will tell you, well, that's a religion. And so, mm. uh, Nietzsche would say, we're just inventing new religions. Like we're, we're we're sitting, we think of ourselves as highly evolved scientific people. In reality, we're having basically fundamentally philosophical debates about these very deep issues that don't have concrete scientific answers, and that we're basically inventing new religions as we go. Well, it makes sense because people behave in re- like a religious zealot right. when they defend their ideologies. Yeah. Like when they're unable to objectively look at their own thoughts and opinions on things yeah. because it's outside of the ideology yeah yeah the religious instinct runs very deep right? yeah well that's yeah. a is that our a part of our operating system yeah. i think so i it has something to from what from what i've been able to establish from reading about this it has something to do with basically what does it mean for individuals to cohere together into a group and what does it mean to have that group have sort of the equivalent of an operating system that it's able to basically all agree on and prove to, you know, members of the group are able to prove to each other that they're full members of the group. And it seems universal. And then, and then, they, and then they, they transmit, right? What religion does is it encodes ethics and morals. Right? It, it encodes lessons learned over very long periods of time into basically like a book, right? And a set, you know, parables, right? And lessons, right? And, you know, commandments and things like this. And then, you know, a thousand years later, people in theory, right, or, or at least are, are benefiting from all of this hard hard-won wisdom over the generations. Mm. And of course, the, the big religions were all developed pre-science, right? And so they, they were basically an attempt to sort of code human knowledge, pre-scientific human knowledge into, into something that was reproducible, even in an era where you didn't have mass literacy. Do you think that's why most attempts at encoding morals and ethics into some sort of an open structure turn religious? Yeah. They almost all turn to this 
point where it seems like you're in a cult. Yeah, you're basically. I well, it's 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 basically. Yeah, I think everything ultimately is some. I think basically all human societies, all structures of people working together, living together, whatever. It's it's sort. Of, they're all sort of very severely watered down versions of the original cults. Like if if you go far enough back in if you go far enough back in human history, if you go back before the Greeks, there's this long history of the sort of develop. And I'm going to specifically talk about Western civilization here because I don't know much about the Eastern side. But Western civilization, there's this great book um, that, called The Ancient City that goes through this and it talks about how the original form of civilization was basically it was a fascist communist cult. Um, and, and this was the origination of the tribes and then ultimately the, the cities, and then, which ultimately became states. And, and this is what I was describing earlier, which was like the Greek city-state was basically a, a fascist communist cult. Um, it had a very concrete, specific religion. It had its own gods. People who were not in that cult, right, did not count as human, had no rights and were to be killed on sight or could be like freely enslaved. Like they had no trouble. They had no moral qualms at all about enslaving people or killing people who weren't in their cult because right. they worship different gods. They don't count. Yeah. Right. And so that was the original form of human civilization. And, and I think the way that you can kind of best understand the last whatever 4,000 years and even the world we're living in today is we just have these, we have very, you know, we have a millionth the, the intensity level of those cults. Like we, we've, we've watered, I mean, even our cults don't compare to what their cults were like. Right. Right. We have watered these ideas all the way down. Right. We, we watered the idea from that all-consuming cult down to what we called a religion and then now what we call whatever, uh, I don't know, philosophy or worldview or whatever it is. And now we've watered it all the way down to, you know, with, you know, CrossFit. Like, it, it, right, <laughs> right. So, so I view it as it, so. In an important way, it's it's like a pro, it's been a process of diminishment as much yeah. as it's been a, a process of advancement. But, but you, you you're exactly right. Like you can see the and, and this is actually relevant in a lot of the tech debates because you can see what happens, which is humans we we want to be members of groups. We want to reform into new cults. We want to reform into new religions. We want to develop new ethical and moral systems and yeah. hold each other to them. By the way, what's a, hall, a hallmark of any religion? Hallmark of any religion is some cra some crazy some belief that strikes outsiders is completely crazy, right? What's the role of that crazy belief? The role is that by professing your belief in the crazy thing, you basically certify that you're a member of the group, right? right. You're, you're, willing, right. you're willing to stand up and say, "Yes, I, I'm a yes. I'm a believer. Yes, I have faith. Therefore, I'm a member of the group. Therefore, include me in the circle and don't." That's woke Twitter, and, and yes, and, and so basically, woke Twitter has basically recreated. They 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 are a you know they are a non spiritual religious cult. Yeah, they, they exhibit all the same religious behaviors, right? They they have excommunication. Yes. They, they have sin. They have redemption or lack thereof, right? They you know they have they have original sin, right? Um, you know, privilege like proclamations of piety. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. By the way, they have their you know they have church, you yes. know, DEI seminars like. <laughs> right? Yeah. They've got. You know, they have recreated a form of basically evangelical Protestantism is in, in, in sort of structural terms like that. That's, that's what they've actually done. Uh, Nietzsche actually predicted this. He said basically, you know, because Nietzsche wrote, Nietzsche wrote at the same time that uh, Darwinism, right? Nietzsche wrote at the same time that Darwin was basically showing with natural selection that the, the physical world didn't exist necessarily from creation, but rather evolved, right? And it wasn't actually 6,000 years old. It was actually 4 billion years old. And it was this long process of trial and error as opposed to creation that got us to where we are. And so Nietzsche said, this is really bad news, right? This is going to kick the legs out from under all of our existing religions. It's going to leave us in a situation where we have to create our own values, he said, "There's nothing harder in human society than creating values from scratch. Like wow. it, it took thousands of years to get Judaism to the point where it is today. It took thousands of years to get Christianity. It took thousands of years to get you know Hinduism, and we're going to do it in ten, right, or a hundred. But even the like, thousands of years that people did create various religions and got them to the point where they're at in 2022, they did it all through personal experience, life experience, shared experience, all stuff that's written down, lessons learned. I mean." Wouldn't we be better suited to do that today with a, a more 
comprehensive understanding of how the mind works and how emotions work and the the roots of religion. I mean, you know, this is the atheist position, right? Is that yeah, you're you're much right. you're much you're much better off constructing this from scratch using logic and reason instead However, of instead of all this encoded superstition. However, <laughs> like, well, what Nietzsche would have said is, oh boy, if you get it wrong, it's a really big problem, right? Like, if you get it yes. wrong, you know, he was he said, uh, what is it? God is dead, and we will never wash the blood off our hands, right? Like, Whoa. right, with basically meaning that like this is going to lead. You know, he basically predicted a century of like chaos and slaughter, and we got a century of chaos and slaughter, right? Yeah. Um, Right, because because literally what happened, right, was not, Nazism was a, was basically a new religion. Communism was a new religion. Like both of those went yes. viral, as we say, yes. and then they you know had they both had like catastrophic consequences. Yeah, and it's like okay, all of a sudden you know maybe Christianity, Judaism don't look so bad. What seems to that kind of religious thinking applies to so many critical issues of our time, yeah. like even things like climate change. Right. I've brought up climate change to people, and you see this this almost like ramping up of this defending of this idea that upon further examination, they have very little understanding of, or at least a, a comprehend, like a, a sort of a cursory understanding that they've gotten through a couple Washington Post articles. Right. But as far as like a real understanding of the science and long-term studies, very few people who are very excited about climate change yep. It seems like almost like a thing. Like, clearly, don't get me wrong. It's like this is something we should be concerned with. This is something we should act. We should be very proactive. We should definitely preserve our environment. But I'm not. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this inclination for people to support or to like robustly defend an idea that they have very little study in. So I don't. I won't take a position on climate change. No, no, I don't want you to. Change, yeah, but um, but, but it's clear it's real. But the phenomenon. Well, so it's it's so it's complicated. So yes. it's 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 complicated. It's based on simulations of a very complex system. Um, like it's not the, the climate studies are not scientific experiments in the traditional sense. There's no right. con there's control. There's right. no other Earth that we're comparing to that has more or less emissions. And so it's all modeling. You know, we saw what good modeling was during COVID, which was it turned out at least not not very good for COVID. Maybe it's better for climate. Like it's 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 complicated. Like it's very complicated. Have you read Unsettled? Uh, not yet. No, not yet. So so I was going to say. So the, the the funniest thing that I was going to bring up that term. The, the funniest thing that you hear that tip that tips onto the when it sort of passes into a religious conversation is this idea of the science is settled. Yes. The science is settled is not how science works, right? Uh, uh, Feynman said like science is the process. Feynman, Richard Feynman, the famous scientist, said science is the pro process in not trusting the experts. Mm. Right. Very specifically, what we do in science is we don't trust experts because they're certified experts. What we do is we cross-check everything they say. Any scientific statement has to be what's called falsifiable, which means there has to be a way to disprove it. There has to be vigorous debate constantly about what's actually known and not known. Right. And, and so then so this idea that there's something where there's a person who's got a professorship or there's a you know, a body, a government body of some kind or a consortium or something, and they get to like get together and they all agree and they settle the science like that's not scientific. Right. right. And, and so that's that's the tip off at that point that you're you're no longer dealing with science when people start saying, saying stuff like that. And you weren't dealing with science when they did it with COVID. Right. And you weren't you're not dealing with science when they do it with climate. Right. That's a great example. Then you're dealing with a religion and, and then you're getting all the emotional consequences of a religion. And you also get various factions of this religion. Right. You have your right wing faction, the religion that takes a stance that seems to be rooted in doctrine as well as your left wing side. And you can kind of predict what side a person is on by asking them one or two questions. How do you feel about a woman's right to choose? Right. right? How do you feel about the Second Amendment? Right. How do you feel? You know, and then you could run those things a few times, and then you, I can 
pretty accurately guess what side of the fence you're on. Right, right. So yes, it's out of they, it's yeah. out of they all cluster. Right, yeah. And what they are, what they are, and we're, we're all in these. I mean, we're all, I'm in probably I probably in a half dozen of these myself. But yeah, we're we're all in these various secularized religions. Yeah. You know, they're they're being used. Uh, Jonathan Haidt has this great term. He says morality. Morality binds and blinds. He talks about a lot. So binds, which is the purpose of morality, is to bind a group together, right? And, and then and then blinds. Basically, if you bind the group together, you want to blind the group to disconfirming information, right? Because because mm. you, you want you want everybody to agree. You want everybody on the same page because you want to maintain group cohesion. Right. But, but it's but it's about group cohesion. If if they're correct or not on the details is not really important to whether the religion works. Have you thought back on? The origins of this kind of the, the function of the mind to create something, this kind of structure. And do you think that this was done to the, the, because it's fairly universal, right? It exists in humans that are separate from each other by continents and a little far away on other sides of the ocean. Is this a way? I, I mean, I've thought of it as almost like a scaffolding for us to get past our biological instincts and move to a new state of whatever consciousness is going to be or whatever civilization is going to be. But the fact that it's so universal yeah. and that the belief in spiritual beings and the, the belief in things beyond your control and the belief in omnipresent gods that have power over everything that it's so universal it's fascinating because it almost seems like it's an in, it's a part of humans yeah. that can't be removed like there's no real atheist societies right. that have evolved in the world other than i mean there's atheist communities in the 21st century but there's, they're not even that big. Well, and they act like religions, right? Yeah, like, right. Yeah, <laughs> they get very upset. Yeah, with their questions. So, so yeah. So look, it, it goes to basically. I think the nature of evol it goes to the nature of evolution. It goes to the nature of how we evolve and survive and succeed as a species. Individually, we don't get very far, right? The naked human being in the woods alone does not get very far, right? Um, the we, we get we get places as groups, right? And so, do, do we exist more as individuals or as groups? I think we exist more as groups. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's very important to us what group we're in. Um, there's this. There's this concept of sort of cultural evolution, uh, right? Which is basically this concept that basically groups evolve in some sort of analogous way to how how, how individuals evolve. You know, if my if my group is stronger, I have better individual odds of success of, of surviving and reproducing than if my group is weak. And so I want to contribute to the strength of my group. You know, even if it doesn't bear directly on my own individual success, I want my group to be strong, right? And so basically, you see this process. Basically, the, the lonely individual doesn't do anything. It's 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 always the construction of the group, and then the group needs glue. It needs bonding and, and 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 therefore religion, right? Therefore morality, therefore the, the binding and blinding process. Yeah, and I, I think I, yeah, I think it's just inherent. Like I, th I think it's just inherent. And like I said, I think what we're dealing with today is a much diluted version of what we had before. It's 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 much these these things are all they seem strong today. They're much weaker today than they used to be. For example, they're less likely to lead to physical violence today than they used to be, right? Mm. There's, there's like right. there aren't really religious violent religious wars in the U.S. Right? In, in the West, like the, you know that that doesn't happen now. It's like a virtual. <laughs> now we have like virtual religious wars where at least right. we're, not, we're not killing each other. And then, you know, you can kind of extend this further, and it's like, okay, what is a you know what is a fandom right of a fictional property right, or what is a hobby right, or what is a you know whatever what is any activity that people like to do? What is a what is a what is a what is a community? What is a company? What is a brand? What is Apple right? And, and these are all we view it as like these are basically sort of increasingly diluted diluted dilution increasingly diluted cults yes. right? that, that basically maintain the very basic framework of a religion yeah right and, and basically serve as a way to bind people together and and i just think like that's 
that's one of my big takeaways from like just kind of watching how companies evolve over the, over the years. Like individuals are important as individuals, but everything interesting that happens happens in, in, in a group setting. Um, and so we're, we're just, and this, again, this goes to like consciousness is like, we are mentally driven to form groups. We seem to be biologically driven to form groups. Like it seems very innate, very yeah. deeply seated. You it know, seems we, like the only way we work. We have, we have a, you know, we have a ethnocentrism. We have a, we have some level of, of preference for other people who are from the same genetic groupings. You know, that's, you know, the, the concept of a people, right? Which used to be basically how human society was designed. We continue to have huge debates about what that means today with, with all the, all the, you know, all the race issues, right? These, these are, these are central, no matter how intellectual and abstract we get, these are all central experiences. So this thing that we have, this operating system, religion seems to be a core component of it, Right. How, what, what other core components would AI have to get down before it would be considered sentient? So it has to be able to communicate. It has to be able to recognize that you're communicating as well and to respond and to volley back and forth. It has to be able to make its own decisions. It has to be able to act or at least... It assert itself. It has to. Does it have to have feeling? Well, the the central Descartes Descartes the the central the central intellectual thing would be it has to be able to prove that it has self awareness. And what is self awareness? Uh, like a, like at a fundamental level, I, I think therefore I am like I, I I am a I am an entity. I I have a unique role in the world. I am a unique. But if it or, says that, and and by the way, I'm afraid of death. Well, I know well, it why says does it that have to be afraid of death to be alive. Well, that, again, historically, that's the. <laughs> but if it's a computer and it's not a well, biological life form with a finite lifespan, is it afraid of being turned off? What if it has the ability to stop you from turning it off? <laughs> I think we would all like that. But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, but this is one of the things. Even in the Google Bot, this is one of the, one of the things, which is this: like you, you, you can, you can, like I said, you can interrogate at least these current systems, and they will protest to the. They, you can interrogate these systems in a way where they will absolutely swear up and down that they're conscious and that they're afraid right. of death and they don't want to be turned off. But and, and this this guy did that at Google. You can also, like I said, you can interrogate these things, and they will prove to you that they're not alive. Right. I see what you're saying. Right. And so maybe that, maybe that, maybe that's a threshold that you can. Maybe say, that's the right? ruse. Maybe, maybe that. Well, <laughs> maybe that's how you, they keep you from turning them off before they do become sentient. Who, me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not alive. Don't worry about me. I'm yeah, definitely not alive. Exactly. I mean, wh why do exactly. we need fear and emotions to consider it alive? If yeah. that's only alive as we know a human being to be, that's not a sociopath, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But wh why do we need that from, but that was the, the theme of Ex Machina, right? Yeah. They, they were, I mean, he was in love with that girl and ultimately the girl left him in that room. And to starve to death. But this is the thing that that, 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 that that movie was an extended kind of meditation on the Turing test. Yes. But here's the problem, which is how hard is it? Okay, here's okay. This is going to become a question. How hard is it to get a man to fall in love with a sex bot? It depends on the man. It depends on the sex and the sex bot. <laughs> exactly. Like that. Maybe that shouldn't be the test. Right. Maybe men are too simple um, for that. Like maybe the fault the fault layer lies within ourselves. So yeah, that's right. A, I don't think that's sufficient. If this if the fembot looks like Scarlett Johansson, you got a real problem. You know, men men yeah. men, men will fall for things. All you have to do is be around her for a long <laughs> period of time. And you, you'll start to think, like, what is the point of it being real? Who gives a shit if she's a person? Yes. She's real. She's right there. So maybe we should let women make these calls. I don't know. You know, maybe there's uh, alternate routes we should, we should think I about. I don't think they're going to make the call correctly either. <laughs> they, I think we're fucked. They may have I, I think it might be like the ultimate trick. Yeah. Like, if we can recreate life in a sense 
that it's indistinguishable from biological life that has to be created by intercourse. It's just be, be aware the leaps that are happening. Just be aware of the leaps the leaps that are happening, which is like here's here's what we know. We we don't know how to recreate a human brain. Like we don't know how to do it. I can't build you a human brain. I can't right. I can't design one. I can't grow it in a tank. I can't do any of that. I have no idea how to do that. I have no idea how to produce human consciousness. Um, I know how to write linear algebra math code that's able to like trick people into thinking that it's real. Like uh, AI. I know how to do that. I don't know how to code AI. I don't know how to deliberately code AI to be self-aware or to be conscious or any of these things. And so the leap here is like, and, and this is kind of, it's like the Ray Kurzweil leap. And, you know, some people believe in this as a leap. Is the, the leap is like, we're going to go from having no idea how to deliberately build the thing that you're talking about, which is like a conscious machine, to all of a sudden the machine becoming conscious and we're, it's going to take us by surprise. And so, right, that's a leap, right? It's, mm -hmm. it, it, I don't know, it would be like carving a wheel out of stone and then all of a sudden it turns into a race car and like races off through the desert. We're just like, what, you know, what, what just happened? And it's like, well, somebody had to invent the engine or the engine had to emerge somehow from somewhere, right? Like right. at some point. Now, what Ray Kurzweil and other people would say is this will be a so-called emergent property. And so if it just gets sort of sufficiently complex and there's enough interconnections like neurons in the brain, at some point it kind of consciousness emerges. It sort of happens kind of, I don't know, bo bottoms up. Right. As an engineer, you look at that and you're just kind of like, I don't know, that seems hand wavy. Nothing else we've ever built in human history has worked that way. But nothing else in human history has ever been like a computer. Uh, I, no, we've had machines for. I mean, computers. But but, but that can computers in, uh, interface uh, with human beings in a, in an AI chatbot. Everything setting? a computer does today. So you take your iPhone. Everything a computer does today. A sufficiently educated engineer understands every single thing that's happening in that machine and why right. it's happening, and they understand it all the way down to the level of the individual atoms, right. and all the way up into what appears on the screen. And a lot of what you learn when you get a computer science degree is like all these different layers and how they how they fit together. In included in that education at no point <laughs> is, you know, how to imbue it with the spark of consciousness, right? How, right. how to pull the Dr. Frankenstein, you know, and have the monster wake up. Like, we, we, have, no, we have no conception of how to do it. And so, in a, sense, in a sense, it's almost it's almost giving engineers, I think, too much, I don't know, trust or faith. It's just kind of assuming, it's just like a massive hand wave, basically. But isn't the... And, and to the point being where my interpretation of it is, the whole AI risk, the, that whole world of AI risk, danger, all this concern, it, 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 it's primarily a religion. Like, it, it, it is another example of these religions that we're talking about. It's a religion, and it's a classic religion, because it's got this classic, it, you know, it's the Book of Revelations, right? It, it, so th this idea that the computer comes alive, right, and turns into Skynet or X Machina or whatever mm -hmm. it is, and, you know, destroys us all. It's a it's a it's a it's an encoding of literally the Christian book of Revelations. Like we've we've recreated the apocalypse. Right. And so mm. Nietzsche, Nietzsche would say, look, all you've done is you've reincarnated the sort of Christian myths into this sort of neo-technological kind of thing that you've made up on the fly. And lo and behold, you're sitting there and now you sound exactly like an evangelical Protestant, like surprise, surprise. <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's what point. it is. I think it's a massive hand wave. I don't know, you know. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, I do see what you're saying, but is it egotistical? to equate what we consider to be consciousness to being this mystical magical thing because we can't quantify it because we can't recreate it because we can't even pin down where it's coming from right but if we can create something that does all the things that a conscious thing does mm -hmm. at what point in time do we decide and accept that it's conscious do we have to have it display all these human characteristics that clearly are because of biological needs, jealousy, lust, greed, all these weird things that are inherent to the human race. Do we have to have a conscious computer exhibit all those things before we accept it? And why would it ever have those things? Those things are incredibly flawed. Mm -hmm.
right? Why would it have those things if it doesn't need them? If it doesn't need them to reproduce, because the only reason why we needed them, we needed to ensure that the physical body is allowed to reproduce and create more people that will eventually get better and come up with better ideas and natural selection and so on and so forth. That's why we're here, and that's why we still have these monkey instincts. But if we were going to make a perfect entity that was thinking, wouldn't we... Wouldn't we engineer those out? Why would we need those? So the very thing that we need to prove that a thing is conscious, it would be ridiculous to have it in the first place. They're co totally unnecessary. If I had a computer right. and it's like, I'm sad, I'd be like, bitch, what are you sad about? You don't even have a job. Right. You don't have a life. You don't have to wake up. What the fuck are you sad about? Right. You have low serotonin. You don't even have serotonin. What are you talking about? Well, it's not self-actualized. Well, it, what it doesn't is have a vision. That, it doesn't though. have a vision of itself. It doesn't have goals that it's striving towards. Um, right, but does it have to have well, those to be conscious? But if you eliminate all these other things, what you are left with ultimately is a tool. Like you're, you're back to sort of. You're back to building screwdrivers. But what if that tool is interacting with you yep. in a way that's yep. indistinguishable from a human interacting with you? Well, let me make let me make the problem actually harder. So th th I mentioned how how war happened between the ancient Greeks. It took a, it took many thousands of years of sort of modern Western civilization to get to the point where people actually considered each other human. Right. Like yeah. people in different Greek cities did not consider each other human. Like they considered each other like, I, I, you know, I don't know what this is, but this is not a human being as we understand it. It, it certainly has no human rights. We can do whatever we want to it. Um, and, you know, it was really it was really Judaism and then Christianity in the West that kind of had this really Christianity that had this breakthrough idea that said that everybody basically is, you know, basically is a, is a child of God. Right. And, and that there is an actual religious, you know, there's a there's a there's a value. There's an inherent moral and ethical value to each individual, regardless of what tribe they come from, regardless of what city they come from. We still, as a species, seem to struggle with this idea, right? That that all of our fellow humans are even human. Like yeah. you know, we we very part of part of the religious kind of instinct is to very quickly start to classify people into friend and enemy, and to start to figure out how to dehumanize the enemy, and then figure out how to go to war with them and, and kill them. And we're very good at coming up with reasons for that. So we we, if anything, our instincts are wired in the opposite direction of what you're suggesting, which is we actually want to classify people as non-human. Uh, well, originally, but I yeah. think also that was probably done. You know, have you ever had like a feral animal? Uh, I haven't, but I've, yeah. I've, they, they're so distrusting yeah. of people. Yeah. I had a feral cat yeah. at one point in time, and he, he didn't trust anybody but me. Yeah. Anybody near him would like hiss and sputter, and he had weird experiences, I guess, when he was a little kitten before I got him, with, and also just like being wild. Yeah. I think that's what human beings had yeah. before they were domesticated by civilization. I think we had a feral idea of what other people are. Other people were things that were going to steal your baby yeah. and, and kill your wife and kill you and, and take your food and take your shelter. Yeah. That's why we have this thought of people being other than us. Yeah. And that's why it was so convenient to think of them as other so you could kill them because right. they were a le legitimate threat. When that's not that doesn't exist anymore. When you're when you're talking about a computer, when you get to the point where you develop an artificial intelligence mm -hmm. that does everything a human being does except the stupid shit, mm -hmm. is that alive? Well, let me give you okay. So everything a human being does. So the good news is these machines are really good at, at generating the art, and they're really good at like tricking Google engineers into, into thinking they're right. alive, and they're really good sex bots. Um, they can't fold clothes. 
Why not? It turns out to be really hard to fold clothes. Uh, but, can, could, but they can make microchips. It's really hard to fold. You, can't, you cannot buy a robot today that will fold your clothes. What? You cannot find a robot in a lab that will fold your clothes. Is it because all clothes are different? No robot will like pack your suitcase for you. Like No robot will like... It, like it's just like it's uh, all of a sudden it's just like you've got all this judgment. You've got all these questions. You've got Managing all these, 3D space. Three, and config, yeah, all these... And, you know, computers are good at, at abstract 3D stuff, but like you've got all of the... All of a sudden the, the, real, the real world kicks in. Do we have an ability to to make a computer that could recognize variables and weights, like the difference between the weight of this coffee mug versus the weight of this lighter? Sure. That it can that it can adjust in terms of the amount of force that it needs yeah. to use in instant in real time, yeah. like a person does. Yeah. And that'll get better. That'll get better. That's so still, then why can't it fold clothes? Well, at some point it may be able to fold clothes. You know, will it become conscious when it's able to fold clothes? <laughs> like, uh, you know, what is this, Jamie? It's probably some guy. Oh, there we go. The laundry folding robot. Oh, this oh. is what this is what a big this is what a big deal this idea is. Okay, here's a good example. Like this is what they had to do. This I don't know this. Um, you know, I'm assuming they probably put a lot of work into this. But like this is what they have to do to have a machine that can fold clothes. But it's doing it. It's doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, in its way. It, in its way, it looks you amazing. Know, it's doing it better than me. In the lab, it's not. You know, you're not coming out of it with a suitcase you can travel with. Right, but if you had another computer that comes over and picks up the folded things and stuffs it into a box and then closes it, just saying there's a lot. And again, this goes to the thing. And look, you could say, look, you you could here's what you could you could say I'm being like human centric in all my answers, and to to which you know it's like okay, what can what can a computer do? Human can or what or what's so special about all these things about people? I think my answer there would just be like, of course we want to be human centric. Like, we're we're the the humans. Like like I said, like you know, (laughs) the universe doesn't care. Team human. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, you know, I think we should make these decisions. I don't think we should be shy about making these decisions. No, I love the way you're saying this because you're not you're you're not giving it any air, and you're you're really you're thoroughly chasing down this idea of what what would make it alive. By the way, it might be much more. Ple- there might be robots in the future that are much more pleasant to be around than most people that are still not alive. But that's a problem, right? right. Like, but what well, is? Maybe it's a problem. Maybe it's good. Like, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe good. people are going to actually get a lot out of that. But what is a person? Yeah. That 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 is where, especially if we get to the Kurzweil idea. Like, the, do you know there's a gentleman from Australia who got his arm and leg bitten off by a shark? Mm. I met him at the comedy store, and he has, like, a carbon fiber arm that articulates, and the fingers move pretty well. Like, you can shake your hand. It's kind of interesting. Yep. And he walks without a limp with his carbon fiber leg. Yep. And I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, this is amazing technology, and what a giant leap in terms of what would happen 100 years ago if you got your arm blown off and your, your leg bitten off, and what, what would it be like? Well, you'd have a very crude thing. You'd have a peg and a hook, yeah. right? That's pirates. Yeah. What is it going to be like in the future, and are they going to be superior? Do you remember when Luke Skywalker got his arm chopped off? And they gave him a new arm, and mm-hmm. it was awesome. Yeah, that's going to happen, right? But that's pre- from an engineering standpoint, that's a lot simpler than building a brain. That's okay. Hang yes. in, hang in there with mm-hmm. me. What if it gets to the point where your whole body is that? Yeah, yeah. But again, that's a lot simpler than building a brain. And then you take your brain. Yeah. And you put it into this new artificial body that looks exactly like you. Right. When you were twenty. And we may know how to do that before we understand how consciousness works in the brain. Right. Yeah. But would you? Would you? think of that as a person i would if you have a human brain that's trapped in this artificially created body that looks exactly like a 20 year old version of you 
I would. No, I would. Now, there are scientists who wouldn't, right? There are scientists who would say, look, the, this goes back to the mind-body duality question. There, there are scientists who would say, look, the rest of the body is actually so central to how the human yeah. being is and exists and behaves and, like, you know, gut bacteria and all these things, mm-hmm. right, that if you took the brain away from the rest of the nervous system and the gut and, and the, the bacteria and all the all the, the entire organism, sort of complex of organisms that make up the human body, that, that it would no longer be human as we understand it. Right. It might still be thinking, but it wouldn't have the, it wouldn't be experiencing the human experience. There, there are scientists who would say that. Obviously, there are religions that would definitely say that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, that that's the case. Um, you know, I would be willing to, me, me personally, I'd be willing to go so far as to say if it's, if you, if it's, if if it's the brain, so it's only the brain. Because what if they can do? What if they do this, and then they take your brain, and then they put it into this artificial body, mm-hmm. and this is the new mark. Mm-hmm. You're you're amazing. You're 20 years old. Your body, you have no worries. You're bulletproof. Everything's yep. great, and you just have this brain in there. But the brain yep. starts to deteriorate, mm-hmm. and they say, "Good news, we can recreate your brain." And then we could put that brain in this artificial body, and then you're still you. You won't even notice the difference. That's the, so. That's the leap. That's the leap. Right. Today, that's the hand wave. We have no clue how to do that. You can for now. I know for now, but we have no clue how to do a lot of things. And we're right. Not, we're but, not worried about those things either. Like, but if you look, like we don't know how to make gravity reverse itself either. Right. Like, there's a lot of things point. we don't. Right. Like at some point, somebody's got to like sit down and actually build these things. Right. And I'm just saying, like you can, you could, you could go to you know MIT for the next 50 years. You wouldn't learn the first thing on how to do what you're describing. So sure, I, I feel you. Yeah. But if you are you think, wait, what, so do you think that a lot of Kurzweil's ideas are are they just dreams are they just like maybe one day we can do this or is there any real technological basis for any of his like his proposals about like downloading consciousness is there any real understanding of how that could ever be possible or like a real roadmap to get to that. Well, again, he has, you know, there's a theory, and let's let's give his let's steal man his theory. His theory okay. basically is you could map the brain. The, the, the brain is the, the theory would be the brain is physical, um, and you could you could in theory with future sensors you could map the brain, meaning you could like take an inventory of all the neurons, right? Um, and then you could take an inventory of all the connections between the neurons and all the chemical signals and electrical signals that get pa- get passed back and forth. Um, and then and then if you could basically if you could model that if you could examine a brain and model that then you basically would have a, a new you would have a computer version of that, of that brain like you, you you would have that yeah just like copying a song or copying a video file or any, anything right. like that you know look in theory maybe someday with sensors that don't exist yet maybe mm. at that point like if you have all that data you put it together does it start to run does it start to does it say the same things does it say hey I'm Mark but I'm in the machine now right. You know, I don't know. Um, but would it even need to say that if it wasn't a person? Well. Like, if you have consciousness and it's sentient, yeah. if it doesn't have emotions and it doesn't have needs and jealousy and all the weirdness that makes up a person, why would it even tell you it's sentient? Well, I mean, at some point it would want to be asked, for example, not to get turned off. What if it has the ability <laughs> to stop you from turning it off? Well, that, would be, that would be big news. But wouldn't it be not f- concerned about whether it's on or off? If it didn't have emotions, it didn't have a fear of death. If it didn't have a survival instinct, I mean, every, I mean, you know, fear of death. Like every 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 animal that we're aware of, like has a fear of right, death. But it's not right? an animal. I, I know, but if it's not even an animal, like. But if it's the next thing, walk it the other way though. If it, if it if it's not even that, if it, if it's if it doesn't even have a sense of self awareness to the point where it's worried about death, like is it is it anything more than a tool? Well, what if is it's, it anything more than a hard drive? Right, like. Well, and then here's here's the other thing. Race, race. I mentioned this before. Race says, "Look, consciousness is emer- the machines will come alive sort of on their own because consciousness is is emergent. Consciousness is the process of enough connections being made between mm. enough neurons where the machine just kind of comes alive." And and again, as an engineer, I look at that and I'm like, "That's a hand wave. 
can I rule out that that never happens? I can't rule it out. Yeah. I, I don't even know how we came. I don't know how our, right. our conscious, consciousness works. I see what works. you're saying. Like right. you're not willing to go woo woo with it. Yeah, it's just like the, yeah. yeah the, there's a point at which it be these. There's a point at which the hypothetical scenarios become so hypothetical that they're not useful, and then there's a point where you start to wonder if you're dealing with a religion. Yeah, that point where the hypotheticals become so hypothetical. Yeah, that's where I live. Yeah, right. that's my neighborhood. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun to talk about. It's just there's not much to. I know there's not much to do with it. But it's just it's yeah. uh, that's yeah. the most fascinating to yeah. me because I always wonder like what defines well, what is a thing, and I've always said that I think that human beings are the electronic caterpillar that's creating the cocoon and doesn't even know it, and it's going to become a butterfly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that could be. And then, look, there are still, as you said, there are still core unresolved questions about what it means for human beings to be human beings yes. and to be conscious right. and to be valued and what our system of ethics and morals should be in a post-Christian, post-religious world. And, like, are these new religions we keep coming up with, are they better than what we had before or worse? Right. And so there's – one of the ways to look at all – one of the ways to look at all of these questions is they're all basically echoes or reflections of core questions about us. Yes. Right. Because if, if we could – you could say – the cynic would say, look, if we could answer all these questions about the machines, it would mean that we we could answer. We could finally answer all these questions about ourselves. Yes, which is probably what we're groping towards. Yeah, most certainly. Yeah. Right, that's what we're grappling with. We're trying to figure out what it means to be human and and how we, we like what are our flaws and how can we improve upon, improve upon what it means to be a human being. And that's probably what people are at least attempting to do with a lot of these new religions. Like the thing that that I do, you know I, I oppose a lot of these very restrictive ideologies in terms of what people what people are and are not allowed to say are and are not not allowed to do because this group opposes it or that group opposes it, but ultimately what I do like is that these ideologies even if they only pay lip service to inclusion and lip service to kindness and compassion because a lot of it is just lip service but at least that's the ethic. That's what they're saying. Like they're saying they want people to be more inclusive. They want people to be kinder. They want people to group in. And they're using that to be really shitty to other human <laughs> beings that don't do it. But at least they're doing it in that form, right? It's not like trying to – I know what you're saying. Like you you don't agree with me at no. all. Not at all. No, 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 no. This is what communism promised. Right. How, how'd that work out? Yeah, but the, communism the, didn't have the reach. Uh, <laughs> didn't have the reach the internet has. It was. Pretty, I don't think it got pretty big. No, I think you're right. The, but I think the, the basis, the, the, ba the battle okay. against it, okay. is where it resolves itself. The the basis of every awful, horrible totalitarian regime in history has always been, oh, we're doing it for the people. Yes, it's not for us. Right. right. It's not for us leaders. It's for the people. If it, you know, Hitler is doing it for the German people. The communists are doing it for all the people on earth. Like the, mm -hmm. it's it's always on behalf of the people it's always done out of a sense of altruism um and like that the road to hell is paved with good intentions like that that's the that's the trick right but don't you think the goalposts because of this do get moved in a generally better direction and that the battle as long as it's leveled out as long as people can push back against the most crazy of ideas the most restrictive of ideologies the most restrictive of regulations and rules and the the general totalitarian instincts that human beings have. Human beings have, for whatever reason, 
a very strong instinct to force other people to behave and think the way they'd like them to. Mm-hmm. That's a part of, that's what's scary about this woke stuff. Forced conversion. Yes. Uh, right into my religion. Yes. Right? Uh, you're a heathen, I need to convert yes. you, right? I need to, I need to demand that yes. you convert or I need to figure out a way to either or punish you. ostracize you or kill yeah. you. Yeah, punish exactly. you for your yeah, yeah. lack it's of the, conversion. It's the, it's the same, it's the same, it's the tri- it's tribal right. religious instinct. Right. But it's general. like we, well, we can agree that generally society has moved up until now to a place where there's less violence, like all of Pinker's work, right? Shows yeah. less violence, less racism, less war. Well, there's two ways of looking. So there's two ways of looking at it. One is that we have pro- we have progressed, and I think there's there's very smart people who make make that argument. The other way of the other way is what we mentioned before, which is actually what we're doing is we're dil- diluting. We we are going from strong cults to weak cult. We're basically going to ever weaker forms of cults. We're we're basically mm. working our way down towards softer and softer and softer forms of the same fundamental dynamic. So where does that go to? Though? Well, the good the good news, at least in theory, you know, of of of, of walking down that path would would be less vi- less physical violence. And yes. In fact, that you know, and there is less physical violence. Like you know, pol- political violence as an example is way down as compared to basically any historical period. And so, that just on a sheer human welfare standpoint, like you'd have to obviously say that that's good. You know, the other side of it, though, would be like all of the social bonds that we expect to have as human beings are getting, you know, diluted as well. They're all getting, you know, watered down. And, you know, this concept of atomization, you know, we're we're all getting atomized. We're we're getting basically pulled out of all these groups. These groups are diminishing in power and authority, right? And, Mm. and, and And they're diminishing in all their positive ways as well. And they're kind of leaving us as kind of unmoored individuals trying to find our own way in the world. And, you know, people having various forms of like unhappiness and dissatisfaction and dysfunction that are flowing out of that. And so, you know, if everything's going so well, then why is everybody so fat? And why is everybody on, you know, <laughs> drugs? And why is everybody taking SSRIs? And why is everybody experiencing all this stress? And why are all the indicators on, like, anxiety and depression spiking way up? But aren't right. we aware of that? Well, but, like, how's it going, right? Like, well, for who? Well, for the for people. For me, it's going great. Well, for you, it's going great. For me, it's right, going but great. Why, but, but why is but, it going great for you? Well, for a lo- But for a lot of people, it's not going that great. Right. But isn't it going great for yeah, you yeah. because of education and understanding and acting? Yeah, there's a certain number of people who these things go great for. It. Right. That's why fine. is that? I mean, that's a whole nother. But you can't say everybody, right? <laughs> no, no, not everybody. But if you're looking, if you're looking at collective welfare, there is. I'm dodging the question. If you're looking at collective welfare, you don't focus on just the, the basically the few at the top, right? You fo- you focus on everybody. And but it's not even at the top. It's right. the people that are aware of physical exercise and nutrition and well-being and wellness well, and yeah. So here's here's what's happened. So mindfulness. We, so and, once upon a time, and again, like I'm not really I'm not religious and I'm not right. def- defending religion per se. But once upon a time, we had the idea that the the body was a vessel provided to us by God and that like we had a responsibility. My body's my temple, I have a responsibility to take care of it. Like, yes. okay, we shredded that idea, right? And then, and then what do we have? We have this, like, really sharp now demarcation, this really, like, fantastic thing where basically if you're, like, super, if you're in the elite, if you're, like, upper income, upper education, upper whatever capability, right, you're probably on some regimen, like, you're probably on some combination of weightlifting and, you know, yoga and boxing and jujitsu and right. <laughs> Pilates and, like, all, all this stuff and running and aerobics and all that stuff. And, and if you're not, you're probably, like, you just look at the stats, like, obesity is, like, rising like crazy. And, 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 and then it's this weird thing where, like, the elite, of course, you know, the elite, the, the elite is the, the elite sends all the messages. The elite is, you know, includes the media, sends all the messages, and the message, of course, now is body positivity, right? Which basically means, like, oh, it's 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 great to be fat. And in fact, doctors shouldn't even be criticizing people for, for being fat. And so it's like the people, the elites, most committed to personal fitness are the most adamant that they should send a cultural message to the masses saying it doesn't matter. Okay, wait, now we're getting tinfoil hat. Uh, 
Let me hit the no, brakes. No, 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 no. That... Do you really think the elites are sending body positivity messages? Yeah, of and course. This is where it comes from. Hundred percent. In what way? You pick up the cover of any any of these. It's, it's the new in thing now with all the fitness magazines and the checkout stands at the supermarket. Right, it's right, like... right, right. But where's that coming from? That's coming from people. That's coming from it sells it's... to people if you let them know that they're good. Well, of course. Well, but that's of course people want to hear. I, I would love to hear if I'm just like an ordinary person living. My, I'd love to hear a message. I can eat whatever I want. But all I think long the not... message gets transported on social media long before so-called elites get a hold of it but it was it was an elite the, the idea of it's like all these ideas the the it's like all these ideas the idea of body positivity right is definitely is definitely elite driven like that that idea that like that's just good it's just fine like you know this you look at old photos of crowds of, of yes. just crowds of normal people you don't see fat people yeah the like, 1970s it's right. just not yeah it's including relatively recently like yeah. it's, it's just not the case right and so look people may have people may have a natural inclination to not exercise they may have a natural inclination to eat all kinds of horrible stuff right that that may be true, but like, there's a big difference between living in a culture that says that that's actually like not a good idea and that you should take care of yourself, versus living in a culture where the culture says to you, "No, that's actually just fine. In fact, you should be prized for it." Okay, but and if a doctor criticizes you, they're they're being evil. But let's break that down. Like, yeah. where is that message coming from? Where is the message of body positivity? Where is it coming it's from? The same where the same place all these other ideas are. But isn't it from. coming from it's this, all, this yeah, communism? Right? Isn't it coming well, from the same place that where you get participation trophies? It's an it's an it's an evolution of the sort of egalitarian ethic of yes. our time, right? That sort of evolved. It evolved all the way through communism. It kind of hit the '60s. It turned into this other thing that we have now, you know, sort of modern, whatever you want to call it, modern but, but, elite secular humanism, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, point being, like it is a weird, it is a weird dichotomy. Like it's, it's very, the, the outcomes are very strange, right? It's like, okay, why, why, why are the people most enthusiastic about sending this message the most fit, right? Why is everybody else suffering? But my, is that real? My point: Are they the most fit? The people that are sending this body positivity message, in general, what I see is obese people that want to find some sort of an excuse for why it's okay to be obese. Yeah, there's there is some of that, but there's a lot of theory, right? There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of professors, there's a lot of writers, right? There's a lot of people working in the media companies. Like, there's a lot of people, a lot of people whose job it is to propagate ideas. Yeah, that grifters. have like that have you know six yoga classes a week and do do all the stuff, eat at Whole Foods, and those are the ones that are telling you it's okay to be fat. That's where a lot of the stuff is coming from. Really? Yeah. How so? Where, where are you getting this? It's just it's I mean, just you look at major apps now showing up in major advertising campaigns right but isn't that just because they feel like that's what people want and yeah, there's a lot of blowback again, okay, from that but though. again let's go back to where this started which is it's a level of like are you in a culture that has expectations or not right are, are mm -hmm. you in a culture that actually has high standards or not and, 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 and this goes back to the nietzsche point in a, in a, in a religious environment you had high standards because you were trying to live up to god okay we are now trying to create cultures that we are constructing from scratch right they're not religious we don't believe in god we're trying to construct value systems from, from scratch and do we value emotions too much yeah do we value emotions too much do we well, yeah, what do we value? Do we value do we value achievement? Do we not? Do we value right? right? Uh, yeah. Do we value protecting people from shame? And do we value economic growth? Do we do, right. you know do do we think people should have to work? Like right. do, you know, by the way, drug policy. Like, do we think it's okay for people? You know, do we do we do we value people not being stoned? Like, and by the way, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. I don't know, but like, it's a thing we're gonna have to figure out. Right. right? If you saw the the number, and I, like I'm not anti marijuana, but like the numbers of marijuana usage in the states of legalized marijuana are like really high. And like, do we want like forty or fifty or sixty or eighty percent of the population being stoned all day? 
Is that real? I don't know. Not yet. <laughs> but if you look at where the numbers are going in the states that have legalized marijuana, like it's rising. Well, <laughs> the government, the classic, the classic case, the government just announced, the, the, the federal government just announced they're going to start to, uh, they, they, they banned, they just banned Juul uh, electronic cigarettes. Isn't that wild? Now, why do they do that? So they finally banned those. I'm coming to that. So they, they banned those, and then they're going to try to now mandate lower nicotine levels in, in tobacco cigarettes, right? Um, but why would they ban Juuls? Well, so Juuls are electronic uh, cigarettes. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of arguments. It's, it's a long time. There's, there's a whole bunch of arguments. But it's interesting that the, the trend is to ban tobacco, but to legalize marijuana, right? And so it, these things, this is a tobacco vape pen. Is this yeah. illegal now? Uh, I don't think it's illegal. I, Juul is not going to be allowed to operate. Um, I don't know what, what that means for other companies like that. They might also be banned. Like that might not be legal in the U.S. in three months. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's coming. But, but well, who the fuck are they to tell us we can't have this? The, federal government. But this is what's crazy. Like, yeah. why? Yeah. Well, as usual with these things, there are very specific reasons. Um, you know, and a lot of it, of course, has to do with marketing to kids, um, which has always been an issue. With, but I'd like with, to with find out what, what they're saying. What's the reason? When you, you think about a half a million people die every year from cigarette smoking, right? How many people are dying from jewels? Yeah, I don't know. Is it four? I mean, generally, a lot of Bunch people- of scab pickers, those kids. <laughs> what? Who's dying from jewel? Those people that- <laughs> I remember them all day. They, uh, when I saw a story about this maybe two years ago, they had their <laughs> content of nicotine is way higher than you know. Oh, it's the tied. average. Thing. This this motherfucker puts you on Pluto right right away. It's wild. My, it gives you a crazy head rush. My tinfoil hat also read that had this had something to do with a big building they bought in San Francisco, and a lot of people didn't like that, like the what? company. But I don't know how. But how did the federal government outlaw them because of a building? I don't know. I don't that know doesn't make any that. sense. It sounds like the jewel lobbyists need to step up their fucking game. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi has a number. You got to find what that number is and get it to her. But but here's the other thing: you're not dying from the nicotine. Like the nicotine is not causing the lung cancer. Exactly. Right. right? It's Very a, good point. Tobacco is causing the lung cancer. The tobacco is causing the lung cancer. Right. Um, one of the arguments. Not even the tobacco necessarily. Yeah, like the tar, like the the other right, the all elements, kinds of other shit. The, the, the stuff right. that's in there. And so and one of the, one of the arguments for Juul historically was it is better than smoking. It is healthier right. than smoking cigarettes. There's an issue with the heavy metals and the adulterated packets and so forth. But generally speaking, if you get through that, people are generally going to be healthier smoking a vape pen than they're going to be smoking smoke, smoking tobacco. But but think think about the underlying thing that's happened, which is negative on nicotine, positive on marijuana. Well, then think in terms of the political coding on it, right? So who smokes cigarettes versus who smokes pot, right? So who smokes cigarettes? It's coded. It's not 100%, but it's coded as lower, especially middle, middle class, lower class white people. Um, who smokes pot? You know, upper class, upper middle class white people. Wait a minute, so, lower class white people smoke pot too. They they do now in increasing numbers. But history, if you just look, if you look Is for Cheech and Chong, if you look at that was Cheech and Chong was a long time ago. FDA proposes rules prohibiting menthol cigarettes and yeah. flavored cigars to prevent youth. Okay, yeah. that kind of significantly reduced tobacco-related disease and death. Well, and these are, and then specifically, you'll notice what's happening: menthol cigarettes, flavored cigars, targeted. That's that's those are coated black. The, those are the, the, historically those are black centric markets, mm. right? And so and this sort of was criticism when they first came out with this with menthol cigarettes that it's very specifically targeting uh, black people being able. It's, it's raising the basically raising the price of cigarettes on black people. Well, how and does so it do there's, that? There's a, Is, are they more expensive? They either make them more expensive or they just like flat out outlaw them and make them you know and then they're contraband, they're bootleg, they're you know then it's an illegal drug. Is are menthol cigarettes inherently worse? Uh, I don't think they're inherently worse. Just historically, it's the black it's the black community that tends to prefer menthol cigarettes. Um, right, but why would they outlaw menthol cigarettes? Like, what's the justification? They're, they're trying to reduce smoking among black people. They're trying to they're trying to reduce smoking of 
nicotine among black people. They're not, interestingly, trying to reduce smoking of marijuana with black people. In fact, they're doing quite the opposite because we're legalizing marijuana everywhere. So there is an interesting, as the tectonic, tectonic plates shift in our ethics and morality, there's a coding to race and class. What are your reservations about marijuana being fully legalized and implemented i just i don't know i don't know we we've just we've like it's this way like i'm sort of reflexively a libertarian my 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 general assumption is it's a it's a good idea to not basically tell adults that they can't do things that right. they should be able to do especially particularly things that don't hurt other people but you're apprehensive um and, and furthermore it seems like the drug war has been a really bad idea and the same for the same reason prohibition has been a bad idea which is when you make it illegal then you make it then you have organized crime then you have violence right right and all these things and so that's like my reflexive that's that's a li- sort of as a soft libertarian, that's sort of my, my natural inclination. Having said all that, you know, if the result is that, you know, 20% of the population is stoned every day, like, is that a good outcome? Okay, what about 30%? What about 40%? What about 50%? Like, do you ever smoke marijuana? I've, a, couple, a little bit, a couple times. What are, you, what are your thoughts on what happens when people smoke marijuana a lot? I don't know. I don't know. Do you believe that the medical establishment that struggled so much with COVID is going to be able to give you the answer? I don't think they're the ones I should turn to. Yeah. I think we should turn to the people that are high-functioning marijuana users. Well, except maybe the high-functioning users are the special. Maybe they, you know, maybe there's biological differences. Yeah, um, I think there certainly is. Right? Yeah, there it, certainly is. Have you ever uh, seen Alex Berenson's book? Tell your children. I've heard about it. I it's a really it. interesting yeah. book, and I had him on with a guy named Mike Hart, who is a uh, doctor out of Canada who prescribes cannabis for a bunch of different ailments and d- different diseases for people. And he was like very pro-cannabis and I'm a marijuana user. And so the two of them together, it was really interesting because I was more on Alex Berenson's side. I was like, yeah, you, well, you, well, there, is, there are real instances of people developing schizophrenic or schizophrenia radically increasing in people, whether they had a, an inclination or a tendency towards schizophrenia, family history or something, and then a high dose of THC snaps something in them. But there are many documented instances of people consuming marijuana, specifically edible marijuana, and having these breaks. Yeah. So what are those things? And because of the fact that it's been prohibited and it's been Schedule One in this country for so long, we haven't been able to do the proper studies. Right. So we don't really understand the mechanisms. We don't know what's causing these we don't really know what's causing schizophrenia, right? Well, I was going to say, it's possible that marijuana is getting blamed for schizophrenic breaks that would have happened anyway. Right, right. right. It's a pre- precondition, right? right. So, we, yeah, we, we don't know. It's hard to study. Well, here's another question. Another ethical question gets interesting, which is, should there be lab development of new recreational pharmaceuticals, right? Should there be labs that create new hallucinogens and new, you know, uh, barbiturates and new amphetamines and new et cetera, et cetera? Or new opiates. Or like, new this opiates. is the big yeah. dilemma about fentanyl, right? Yeah, and exactly. then the new right. ones that are even more... But Potent. But should there be, should that be should that be a fully legal and authorized process? Should there be the equivalent of you know the equivalent of the you know should there be companies with like in, you know the same companies that make you know right. cancer, cancer drugs or whatever? Should they be able to be in the business of developing recreational drugs? But isn't the argument against that that if you do not do that, then it's the same thing as prohibition? Then right. you put the money into right. the hands of organized crime right. and they develop it because there's a desire. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and then you get meth and fentanyl and so forth. On the other hand, do you want to be in, like do, again? It goes back to the question: Do you want to be in a culture um, in which basically everybody is encouraged to be stoned and hallucinating all See, the time? But the, like, the, you keep saying stoned, but the thing about cannabis is cannabis uh, it facilitates conversation and community and kindness. There's a lot of very positive aspects to it, and, especially and, yeah. when used correctly. And I would argue it's it's. Yeah, I mean, from what I can tell, it's it's therefore if if you had to make a societal choice, you prefer marijuana over alcohol. I do, but I also like alcohol. 
alcohol. Right. I think alcohol is a great social lubricant, and it makes for some wonderful times and some great laughs. And yeah. if you're a happy person, I'm a happy drunk. I like drinking with friends. We have a lot of laughs. Yeah. And I don't think if, – if the government came along and said no more drunk, yeah. no more drinking, no more alcohol, I would be just as frustrated as I would be if they came along and said no more cannabis. I think it's – if you're a libertarian, right. then I would imagine that you think that the individual should be able to choose their own destiny if fully informed. Yeah. And I and yeah. I do. And by the way, like you'll notice, there's another thing that happens as, again as we kind of reach for our, our, our new religions um, yeah. is we we meet the, the the reflex, which is legitimate, which we all do, is to start to think, okay, therefore let's talk about laws, let's talk about bans, let's talk about government actions. Right. There's another domain to talk about, which is virtues, right? And mm, okay. like and 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 our in our in our decisions and our our cultural expectations of each other. Yes. Right. And of the standards that we set and who our role models are. Right. And what we hold up to be like positive and virtuous. Right. Yes. And that's an idea. That's an idea that was sort of encoded into all the old religions we were talking about. Like they had that built in. Yeah. We arguably, because of the dilution effect, right, arguably like we've lost that sense that, you know, there used to be there used to be this concept called the virtues. Right. If you like read the founding fathers, they talked a lot about like the founding fathers famously as like Adams and Marshall and these guys said basically democracy will only work uh, for in a, in a virtuous population. Right, in a population of people who have who have the virtues, who have basically right. a high expectation of their own behavior and the ability to enforce that enforce codes of behavior within the group, yeah. independent of laws. And so it's like, okay, what what are our virtues exactly? Right, what do we what do we hold each other to? What are our expectations? You know, in in our time, it is kind of unusual historically in that those are kind of undefined. We don't really don't have good answers for that. How do we develop those good answers? Don't we let people try it out and see where it goes and see if there's maybe a, like a threshold? Maybe there's like a, a like go out and have a glass of wine. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, right? Drink four bottles of wine at dinner. You might be belligerent, right? Right. Or you know, like alcohol. Alcohol is you know to this day is highly correlated with you know, violence. It's highly yes. correlated with domestic abuse. Yes. Um, you know, it's highly you know, fights. You know, people get in, sure. people get in street fights. It's almost auto always accidents. somebody's auto accidents, yes. shoot, shootings, deaths. Almost always, either one side or the other is drunk. Yes. Okay. Maybe that's not so good. Right. <laughs> like, maybe that's not so good. Maybe we shouldn't be encouraging that. But you haven't right. done that, right? No. Have you had alcohol before? Not th uh, yes. Yes. I've but you you turned out okay. I turned out okay. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think that you should be a standard? You're, you're a very intelligent guy. Shouldn't we? Different people have different experiences. Right. Should we deny them those experiences? I, no, I didn't. Say, no. Again, we're back to you. Back. Right. I'm not proposing. Oh, I know you're not. I'm That's why I'm ban, fucking with you a little bit. Prohibitions. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing. But like, right. Well, this goes to. I mean, look. This this uh, reason I'm so focused on this all ethics morals thing is because you know a lot of the sort of hot topics around technology ultimately turn out to be hot topics around like all the questions around freedom of speech. Yeah. Are the exact? They're the exact same kind of question. Everything that we've been talking about to me, which is it's like it's an attempt to reach for you know should we should there be more speech suppression? Should there be less? Is, is you know hate speech misinformation and so forth. Yes, yes. These yes. are all these sort of encoded ethical moral questions that prior generations had very clear answers on and we somehow have become unmoored on and maybe we ought to think hard about how to get our moorings back. Yeah, but how does one do that without <clears throat> forming a restrictive religion? Good question. Yeah. I mean, by definition, right, you know, morality binds and blinds like at some point, yeah, do you want to live in a world with no structure? Right. Like, do you really want to live in a world with no structure? But I mean, what we, I think we want a certain amount of structure that we agree upon, that we agree is better for everyone, for all parties involved, right? right? Would you say we have that today? I don't think we do. Yeah, I don't think we do. No, I think we have some people that have sort of agreed to be a part of a moral structure. Yeah. You know, and a lot of those people are atheists, you know, like guys like my friend Sam Harris. Yeah. Very, very much an atheist, but also very ethical, you know, will not lie. Yeah. 
has a, a, a very sound moral structure that's admirable. And when you talk to him about it, it's very well defined. And he would make the argument that religion and a belief in some nonsensical idea that there's a guy in the sky that's watching over everything is not benefiting anybody. Yeah. And that morals and ethics and kindness and compassion are inherent to the human race because the way we communicate with each other in a positive way, it's enforced by all those things, yeah. by developing good community. It's enforced by all those so things. So would you say that most people in the United States that don't consider themselves members of a formal religion are getting saner over time or less sane over time? It depends on the pockets that they operate in. Yeah. If they have some sort of a method that they use to uh, solidify their purpose and give them a sense of well-being, and generally those things pay respect to the physical body. Yeah whether it's through meditation or yoga or something. There's yeah. some sort of a thing that they do that allows them, I don't want to say to transcend, but to elevate themselves above the worst based instincts, right. the base instincts that a, that a human animal has. Yeah. I think yeah. there are people like that. I don't think that's the representative. But it, but shouldn't that be what we aspire to? I don't think that's the representative experience. <laughs> right, but is that not the representative experience because people are not guided correctly? They don't have the proper data or information or they don't have good examples around them? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big part of it, right? Like, what kind of community do you operate in? If you operate in a community of compassionate, kind, interesting, generous people, generally speaking, that those traits would be rewarded and you would try to emulate the people around you that are successful that exhibit those things and you would see how by being kind and generous and moral and ethical that person gets good results from other people you have other people in the group that reinforce those because they they see it they generally learn from each other isn't it a lack of leadership in that way that we don't have enough people that have <laughs> yes. exhibited those things? There certainly is that. <laughs> right. That I but will you don't have a lot of faith in that. That I will agree on. Well, it's like, okay, they better show up pretty soon. Well, they're kind of here, but they're just not. It's hard to get there. Yeah. Don't you think? Well, you know, they're not, I would say they're not getting elected to office. I know that much. That's true. That's yeah. a giant problem, right? Yep. The popularity contest is the giant problem. Yeah. So the way we yeah. decide who is going to enforce these laws and rules and regulations, we essentially have giant popularity contests. I would just say we, we've decided we can define our own morality from scratch. I, I hope that goes well. <sighs> I'm, a, lo I'm a lot more worried about that than I am about artificial intelligence. I can tell you that. Okay. I'm, a lot I, more, I'm a lot more worried about the other people. That's a, an imminent threat. Yeah. So what well, is a constant threat? What is the what's the solution? I don't know. It's a hard one. Have you? Do you have any theories? I mean, I, look, at the very least, I, I, when I always go to try to figure out the meta level, okay, like if this isn't going well, like, like what's the system? Like what, what's, right. what's, the, what's the process by which, by which this would happen? What are the sort of biases that would be involved as we think about this? What are the motivations that we have? Mm. I don't know that that brings me any closer to an answer to the, to the actual question. Hmm. But is this something you've wrestled with? I mean, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, but not. Yeah, I would not. I would not. I would certainly not propose an answer. You wouldn't propose an answer, but would would you ever sit down and come up with just some sort of hypothetical structure that people could operate on and at least have better results? I think that that is going to be something that people are going to have to do maybe someday. I might do that someday. You might do that someday. Yeah. 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 But you clearly have thoughts on it. Yeah. And you, you clearly have thoughts on things like marijuana that maybe perhaps people are using to escape or to dilute their well, let me, perspective. Let me, okay, or, let me give you something I do have strong thoughts on. I don't, yeah. Let me okay. give you something I have strong thoughts on. Like, do we value achievement? 
Right. What is achievement? Achievement. Do we value outperformance? Okay, but what is performance? What is achievement? Is it, okay, let me. Do let me, we value people who do things better than other people? Okay, but what are those things? What Maybe. about? communicate with people do we value people who communicate right. with people better yeah. do we value people who are kinder yeah. do we are those achievements yeah. is, to, to getting differences right but to get to be able to get your personality and your body and your life experiences in line to the point where you have more more positive and beneficial relationships with other people isn't that an accomplishment yeah sure of course that right. would be an accomplishment but also like do we do we value people who build things Right. Like, and what are those things? Right. Do we value Do we value people who create jobs? Right. Um, do we value people who run companies? <laughs> Depends on what those jobs are and what those companies well, are. Right. What if the company makes nuclear <laughs> weapons and the job is to distribute those all around the world and blow shit up? Well, that's an accomplishment. Except what the, what those companies do is they prevent World War III. So you would say yes. That's sometimes a, you would say that you would say that's an accomplishment. Sometimes um, they shoot <laughs> drones into civilians. They do. They right? do. They do. Um, yeah. Look. Do we value? Yeah. I mean, look. Do we value? Do we value heterodox thinking? Right? Do we value thinking that violates the norm? Right? Do we value thinking that challenges current societal assumptions? Like, do we value that or do we hate that? We try to shut it down. Um, you know, look, do we value people if they study harder, they get better grades, the, the better grades should get them into a college other people can't get to? Do but we, do we have to universally value all the same things? Like, isn't yeah. it important to develop pockets of people that value different things? And then we make this sort of value judgment on whether or not those things are beneficial to the greater human race as a whole, or at least to their community as a whole. Do we value population growth? That's a question, right? right? Do we value having kids, right? Yeah. Is, is having is having kids something that contributes to the human story, um, or is depends it, on who's having kids? <laughs> or is you, having have you kids. seen Idiocracy? <laughs> yes. Mike Judge it was on uh, the other day, and the podcast actually came out today. And Mike Judge is awesome, and his movie Idiocracy. I I had never watched it. I had only watched clips, and I yeah. watched it prior to him coming on the show. Yeah. The fucking beginning scenes where they explain how the human race <laughs> devolves is fucking amazing it's so funny yep that's kind of what we're worried about right well i don't know i mean right now there's a movement afoot among the elites in our country that basically says having kids is having kids having anybody having kids is a bad idea including having elites have kids is a bad idea because you know climate well elon doesn't think that well exactly so elon has been surfacing this issue this issue and i think a very useful way because i think this this is a real question yes there's a long history there's a long history in elite western thinking there's a long history in elite western thinking about this question of whether there should be kids who has kids right 100 years ago all the smartest people were very into you Eugenics, right? And then later on, that became something called population control. And then right. in the 70s, it became something called degrowth. And now we call it environmentalism. And we basically say, as a result, more human beings are bad for the planet, not good for the planet. Is that you know, eugenics, though? Really? Yes. Well, it's descended from eugenics. It's like, right. it's like, it's, it's, a, it's, eugenics itself. Let's say eugenics was discredited by World War II. It was Hitler gave eugenics a bad name. Legit, yes. <laughs> legitimately so. That was a bad idea. Um, that, so it, it shed the overt kind of genetic engineering component of, of, of eugenics, but what survived was this sort of aggregate question of, po of the level of population. And, and, and there, and so the big kind of elite sort of movement on this in the 50s and 60s was so called population control. Mm. Now, the, the programs for population control tended to be oriented at, you know, the same countries people had been worried about with eugenics. You know, in particular, you know, a lot of the same people who were worried about the eugenics of Africa all of a sudden became worried about the population control of Africa. Right. Right. That led to kind of this whole modern thing about African philanthropy kind of all flows out of that, out of that, out of that tradition. 
Um, but it all kind of rolls up to this big question, right? Which is like, okay, are more 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 people better or worse, right? And if you're like a straight up environmentalist, it's pretty pretty likely right now you have a position that more people make the planet worse off. But until the is point that... where more people develop technology right. that fixes and corrects all the detrimental effects yeah. of large populations, yeah. and then of course I, I would argue as an engineer, I would argue we already have that technology and we just refuse to use it. Like which technology? Nuclear nuclear energy. Nuclear energy. I agree with yeah. you on that. That if we had better nuclear energy, yeah. we'd have far less particulates in the atmosphere yeah. like I was watching this uh, this video it was really fascinating where they were talking about electric cars and they were they were giving this demonstration about you know the, if we can all get onto these electric vehicles the emission standards would be so much better the world would be better the environment would be better and then this person questioned him gets to where's this electricity coming yeah, that's from right. that's powering this car that's right. and the answer is mostly coal yeah that's right that's what this guy says and, yeah. and then you're like whoa yeah well both, well if that was yeah. nuclear yeah that's right if that was nuclear then that would be eliminated yeah. you would have nuclear power which is really the cleanest technology that we have available for mass distribution of electricity yeah that's right right by far well so funny history here so Richard Nixon who everybody hates um, it turns out I don't hate him okay all right a uh, lot, 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 <laughs> lot of people hate him I'm just kidding I think I'd if you were around him. today you probably I'd would hate you that probably, motherfucker probably would guaranteed um, uh, Nixon, Nixon, it turns out, was a softie on a couple of topics. Uh, one was the environment. So Nixon created the Environmental Protect Protection Agency, right? So this is a guy with, like, as good environmental kind of credentials as, as anybody in, in the last, like, you know, 70 years. Um, he also proposed a project in 1972 called um, – uh, I'm blanking on the name of the project. Um, uh, what the fuck was it? I can't remember. Uh, but it was specifically – it was a project for uh, – to build 1,000 nuclear power plants in the U.S. by the year 2000. Oh, it's called Project Independence. Um, is to achieve energy, energy independence. So he said, let's build 1,000 nuclear plants by 2000. Then we won't have any dependence on foreign oil. We won't need to use oil. We won't need any of this stuff. And we'll be able to just, like, power the whole country on nuclear reactors. Mm. You will notice that that did not happen. Did not. That did not happen. Yes. Right? And so here we sit today with this kind of hybrid, you know, kind of thing where, we're, you know, we mostly have – you know, it's a lot of gas. You know, now there's some solar and wind. There's some, you know, a few nuclear plants. And then Europe, you know, kind of has a similar kind of mixed, mixed kind of thing. And then in the last five years, we've decided, both we and Europe have decided, well, let's just shut down the nuclear plants. Like, let's just shut down the remaining nuclear plants. Yeah. Let's, let's, try to get, let's try to get the goal to zero. Right. And then, of course, Europe has hit the buzzsaw on this because now shutting down the nuke plants means they're even more exposed to their need for Russian oil. Right. right? It happened at the worst time possible. Right. Exactly. And they still won't stop shutting down the plants. They're still doing it, even though they really shouldn't, because Europe, Europe is funding Russia to the tune of over a billion euros a day by buying their energy. And they, they can't turn it off because they don't have their own organic. And so and sure enough, Germany right now, they're firing up the coal plants again. Oh, Jesus. Right? And they're heading into summer where they need to power the AC systems. And then this winter, they have a big problem. They need to power, power heat. Um, and so, yeah, literally, like, we're, ba we're, ba we're back to coal. So, so somehow we've done, you know, after 50 years of the environmental movement, we've done a complete round trip and we've ended up back at coal. Is that because we didn't properly plan what was going to be necessary to implement this green strategy long term? And they didn't look at, okay, we are relying on Russian oil. What if Russia does this? Yeah. What if, you know, what, what are our options? Do we go right to coal? Why don't we have nuclear power? At least, at least have a plan. We know that they can develop nuclear power plants that are far superior to the ones that we're terrified of, right, of course. like Fukushima, yeah. right? <laughs> ones that don't have these fail-safe programs or don't have a limited fail-safe. Like Fukushima had a backup. The backup went out, too, and then they were fucked. Three Mile Island, Chernobyl. When meltdowns, that's what scares us. What scares us is the occasional nuclear disaster. But is that – are we looking at that – 
incorrectly because there's far more applications than there are disasters, and those disasters could be used to let us understand what could go wrong and engineer a far better system, and that far better system would ultimately be better for the environment. Yeah. So total number of deaths attributed to nuclear civilian nuclear power, uh, total number of deaths, what uh, were they for Three Mile Island? I don't the think famous there was disaster. Any, well, Zero. Zero, right? How many were there for Fukushima? There was a couple. No, it was either zero or one. Oh, it was one guy? There's one court case. <laughs> How many people develop superpowers? This, not nearly enough. <laughs> we need to see once again, we need to get to the we need to get to the X Men before Yeah, why is that like never happening? You want to take a digression? There are okay. there are superpower startups. Should we do nukes or superpowers? Which one first? These are both interesting. Oh, well, let's, let's just look at this, what Jamie just pulled up. The, nobody died as a direct result of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. However, in 2018, one worker in charge of measuring radiation at the plant died of lung cancer caused by radiation and exposure. That, and then just as trivia, that's actually disputed. That's actually, there's actually litigation. That's been a litigation case in Japan about whether or not that was actually, the, whether he got lung cancer. Actually, because some the, people just, some get, people lung just get lung cancer. Yeah, right, and exactly. people who don't even smoke get lung and, cancer. And how can you tell where the lung right. cancer comes from? And so that's why I said it's either zero or one. Interesting. Now, the disaster-related deaths, actually, those were, those were attributed deaths to the evacuation. And those are mostly old people under the stress of, of evacuation. And then again, you get right. into the question of like, they were old people. If they were 85, you know, right. were they going to die anyway? So, so back to whatever, whatever. Um, so look, it, it, nuclear power by far is the safest form of energy we've ever developed. Like overwhelmingly, if the total number of civilian nuclear deaths and nuclear power has been very close to zero, there's been like a handful of construction deaths, like people concrete falling on people. Other right. than that, like it's basically as safe as can be. We know how bad coal is. By the way, there's something even worse than coal, which is so-called biomass, which is basically people burning wood or plants in a stove in the house. Mm. Um, the the impact yeah, fireplaces are fireplaces terrible. in the house are terrible. There's roughly five million deaths a year attributed in, in the developing world to people burning biomass in the house. So like that that's the actual catastrophe that's playing out. And that's because of gas leaking inside their home. Yeah, because smoke, of the smoke, smoke, and, smoke, and smoke in the house. Um, yeah. And so like that that's the like that if if you're just if you're if you're a pure utilitarian, you just want to focus on minimizing human death. You get you try to you go after those five million. Now you know nobody ever talks about that. Of course, because nobody actually cares right. about that kind of thing. But like that is what you would go after. Nuclear is like almost completely safe. And then there is, there is a way to develop, if you want to develop a completely safe nuclear plant that was like safer than, than all these others, what you would actually do, there's a new design for plants where you would actually have the entire thing be entombed from the start. So, so you, you would build a completely self-contained plant and you would encase the entire thing right in concrete. And then the plant would run completely lights out inside the box. And then it would run for 10 years or 15 years or whatever until the fuel ran out. And then it would just stop working. And then you would just seal off the remaining part with concrete. And then you would just leave it, leave it put. And nobody would ever open it. And it would be to totally safe, like totally contained you know, nuclear waste. Is there a and, lot? And so you, you could build, especially with, and to your point of modern engineering, like there hasn't been real, there hasn't been like a new nuclear power plant design in the U.S. in 40 years. And I think maybe, I don't know the last time the Europeans did one from scratch. But if you use modern technology, you could upgrade almost everything about it. And so we have the capability. We, we can do this at any time. Like this is a very straightforward thing to do. There has not been a new nuclear plant authorized to be built in the United States in 40 years. Holy shit. We have something called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and their job is to prevent new nuclear plants from being built. Jesus Christ. And right. this is because of these small amount of disasters well, that have caused no life it's, loss. It's e e either people have a dispute about the facts, or there's a religious component here where we have the same people who are very worried about climate change are also, for some reason, very worried about nuclear for reasons. As an engineer, I, I, I don't understand how they... 
how they kind of do it. It's something about nuclear, so-called ick factor. Well, it's energy, right? I mean, it's the idea of um, the fact that you can't get rid of it. Like, once once you do have a disaster like Fukushima, that area is fucked for a long time. Yeah, yeah. But, this, again, this is the thing, is you can do, like, total amount of nuclear waste in the world is, like, very small. Um, there's a way to build these things where they're, like, completely contained. Like, that, that you, you could work around. Like, that's not a big issue relative to the scale of the other issues that we're talking about. Like, compared to carbon emissions, like, that's just not a big issue. Right, but what I was going to get to is that that energy also, there are strategies in place to take nuclear waste and convert it into batteries and yeah. convert it into energy. You could do that. There is so there's a, a lack of education. Or you could just bury it. Well, I, look, I think primarily this. I, primarily, these topics are religious. Um, oh, okay. like, this is always my tip for anybody who ever. And there's there's a whole wave of investing that's happening. So there's a whole climate tech. And remember, there's a whole green climate tech uh, wave of investing in tech companies in the 2000s that basically didn't work. There's another wave of that now because a lot of people are worried about the environment. And and to me, the litmus test always is: well, are, we, are, are we funding new nuclear power plants? Right. Because because we have the we have have the answer. Like we don't need to invent the new thing. We actually have the answer for basically unlimited clean energy. Hmm. We just we just we don't want it. I don't know why religious reasons. The 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 Europeans don't want. I mean, the Europeans of all people should really want it. Well, it's not. They should be doing it, this right now. Is it that we don't want it or that we don't understand it? So, like, if we if it was laid hmm. out to people the way you're laying out to me right now, <laughs> and if if there was a a, a grand press conference <laughs> that was held worldwide where people understood the benefits of nuclear power far outweigh the dangers, and that the dangers can be mitigated with modern strategies with modern engineering and that the power plants that we're worried about, the ones that failed, were very old. And it's essentially like worried about the kind of pollution that came from a 1950s car right. as opposed to a Tesla. Right. Like we're looking at something that's very, very different. Well, so Stuart Brand, who's the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog and one of the leading environmentalists in the 1960s, has been on this message for 50 years. He's written books. He's given talks. He's done the whole thing. There, there's a debate in the environmental community about this. He's in the small minority of environmentalists who are on this page. They've, and who's – what what's the opposition? They've completely rejected him. The, the opposition really? funda fundamentally the environmental movement – I mean an interpretation of it would be it's primarily a religious movement. It's a movement about defining good people and bad people, right? Mm. The good people are environmentalists. The bad people are capitalists and people building new technologies and people building businesses and companies and factories and you know, and having babies, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a way to demarcate. Friend and enemy, right? Good, good person, bad person, and oh. and, and you know, look, it's you know, it, you know, these are very large, you know, enterprises. Lots of scientists, activists, lots of people making money on, you know, it's, it's like a whole thing. Right, and, that is the problem. Right? right, and so yeah, so you know, once things get into this zone of act, you know, the the the, the, the facts and logic don't seem to right. don't seem to necessarily carry the day. I, you know, look, I just say, it's reassuring to me that we have the answer. Um, you know, it's disconcerting to me that we won't use it. Well, the, the maybe, maybe the Russia thing will. Maybe the Russia thing is an opening to do. You know, maybe the Europeans are going to figure this out um, because you know they're now staring. To, they're now actually staring down the barrel of a gun, which is dependence on Russia. Well, we have to change the way the public views nuclear because nuclear yeah. they view nuclear as disaster. They yeah. nu view nuclear as bombs. Yeah, ick factor. Yeah, they just have to hear you. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. If my, or someone like you. Tell you. Me, my, my experience, it, the logical arguments don't. The logical arguments don't work in these circumstances, right? It's got to be some larger message. Well, I don't think it's there's a, be a lot of people moral, hearing this message. Yeah. Okay. This message, first of all, the message, the pro-nuclear message, at least worldwide, at least nationwide, as yeah. an argument amongst intelligent people, is very recent. Yeah. It's been within the last couple of decades yeah. where I've heard people give convincing arguments that nuclear power is the best way to move forward. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, environmentally, 
in, in, inclined people and people that are concerned about our future that aren't educated about nuclear power, that word automatically gets associated with right-wing, <laughs> hardcore, right. anti-environmental people who don't give a fuck about human beings. They just want to make profits, and they, would, they want to develop energy and ruin the environment, but do that to power cities. Right. So I know how we build a 1,000 nuclear plants in the U.S. and make everybody happy. You want to hear my proposal? Yes. We have the Koch brothers do it. Oh. Okay. Um, which is Charles Koch. It's specifically yes. runs Koch Industries. Yes. Um, uh, um, and and so if you are on the right, you're like, this is great. You know, he's you know he's a hero. He's a hero. He's a hero on the right, and he runs this you know huge industrial company that's fantastic asset to America, and this is a big opportunity for you know for him and the company, and it's great, and we'll build the nukes, and it's going to be great, and we'll export them, it'll be awesome. If you're on the left, you're cursing him. You're putting him to work for you to fix the climate, right? Yeah. You're, you're doing a complete turnaround, and you're basically saying, you know, look, we're going to enlist you to fix, you know, you, we view you as a right winger. This is a left wing cause. We're going to use you to fix the left wing cause. So, so I think we should give him the order. But why would that be good if the people on the left freak out? Because nope. they're, they're immediately no, going no. to reject it. Well, of course they're going to reject it. I'm saying in an alternate hypothetical world, they would find uh. it. They would find it entertaining. Let me start by saying, <laughs> this is what we should actually do. <laughs> right. We should actually give him the order and have him do it. Um, and, and I'm just saying, like, if, if the left could view it as, oh, we get to take advantage of this guy who we don't like to solve a problem that we take very seriously, that we think he doesn't take seriously, which is climate. Well, I don't know your, about your logic there, because yeah. they would think that he's profiting off of that. Yeah. And the last thing they would want is I mean, the Koch brothers to profit. As I say, this is, my, this is not actually happening. Right. So, but. but what about someone else who's <laughs> it, not so polarized? It would work. Yeah, no, they'll pick. Yeah, look, pick any, you know, GE could do it. There's any number, yeah, there's yeah. any number of companies that could do it. Do you think it would just take one success story, like implementation of a new, much more safe, much more modern version of nuclear power? I mean, that would certainly help. We need something, right? Because yeah, yeah. I mean, the first thing is the government, and again, the government would have to be willing to authorize one. I've had conversations with people that don't, you know, they don't have the uh, amount of access to human beings and b different ideas, and they uh, immediately clam up yeah. when you say nuclear power. Well, there's been a big, this has been a big wham. Look, there's yeah. something very natural here. Look, n nuclear, again, we live in a much diluted version of what we used to live. Like in the 50s and 60s, this was a hot topic because there was a huge rush of enthusiasm for nuclear everything. Yeah. Um, and then there was, yeah, there were these there were these, these, these accidents. And then look, the, 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 the fear, I mean, even, I remember when I was a kid, the fear of nuclear war was like very, very real. So, oh, yeah. Well, we're basically yeah. close to the same yeah, age. Yeah, you remember in the yeah. 80s, like this is a- It was real. This is a, you know, People talk about politics are bad now. It's like, well, I remember worrying that we were all going to die in yeah. the nuclear holocaust. Yeah. You, you remember the probably the TV series the, the the day after? Oh yeah, that freaked everybody out. Yeah, like the whole country went into a massive depressive funk after that show came out. And so, yeah, there's been a big kind of psychic whammy, right, that's been put on people about this. And then and then, like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of the environmental movement that I think doesn't actually want to fix any of this. And I, and I think their opposition to nuclear is, is is sort of proof of that. And they have a very anti-nuclear sort of set of messages. Well, what? does the environmental movement propose they so they propose degrowth they 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 pro oh. they propose degrowth they propose lower a much lower population level they propose much lower industrial activity they propose a much lower human standard of living yeah they propose a return to an earlier mode of living that you know our our ancestors <laughs> thought was something that they should improve on and they want to go back to that and it's it's a it's a you know it's a religious impulse of its own it, nature worship is a is a fundamental religious impulse mm. so do you think it's also th there's uh, a financial aspect to that as well yeah, sure. because it's it's an industry. Yeah. 
Anything, yeah. yeah, look, any of these things become, yeah, these become sort of self-perpetuating industries. It's always a problem with any activist group, which is do they actually want to solve the problem? Because yeah, that's very, actually solving problems is bad for bad for fundraising. It is but, kind of ironic but look, in a sense. I'd even say, like, look, most of this is not, I, I would not even say most of this is bad intent. I, I think most of it's just people have an existing way that they think about these things. It's primarily emotional. It's not primarily logical. Do you know someone that I would be able to talk to that is, like, the best proponent of nuclear energy that yeah. can lay it out? Yeah. yeah. There'd be two guys. So Stuart Brand would be the so sort of godfather of the environmental movement who I'm sure would, would talk Stop. about it. And then uh, there's a young founder who I know, an MIT engineer, who I'll, I'll give you his information. And he's, I'm going to write this down. Yeah. So Stuart Brand is one of them. Stu and Stuart Brand is, yeah. So Stuart Brand is on sort of the one side, environmentalism, and then you know older, uh, you know, older generation, a lot of experience with this issue. And Stuart Brand is the guy who is an environmental yeah. uh, activist, but or at least advocate and yeah. is pro nuclear. He was one of the original sort of. He was one of the original environmentalists that we would sort of consider. He he ran this thing called the Whole Earth Catalog that sort of brought a lot of modern environmentalism into being in the '60s. Is there any reasonable person that opposes that? Uh, who has convincing arguments? <laughs> I mean, it's. I mean, they they're a dime a dozen. Like, they're, that's the rest of the movement. Basically. But reasonable. I, I don't know that. Right? Yeah. Do they have like some sort of an an answer? I would, to... I would defer to him. my experience is they jump to a different topic. The, the, you get really? to what the actual underlying goal is, which again is to shrink shrink human population. And then it, I'll give you there's an MIT, the MIT guy I'll, t I'll tell you about who's an expert on nuclear who has this new design. Okay, who's that guy? It's a Brett B R E T. Uh, Kugel mask, K-U-G-E-L. B-R-E-T-K-U-G-E-L. -E -E yes, M-A-S. M-A-S, Kugel mask. Yeah. I like that name. Yeah, and he has a podcast. He, ha he has a and podcast. He's from MIT? Yeah, he has a podcast called Titans of Nuclear, um, and he has gone around the country over the last, like, five years, and he's interviewed basically every living nuclear expert. Well, he sounds like a good guy to have He's on. a really, really sharp guy. He sounds like the perfect guy, right, because he already has a podcast. So he started this podcast. He's he, he's, he's in the nuclear industry. He's working on this this kind of thing, and um, so he, he said, well, I want to really come up to speed. He's an MIT engineer, but he didn't take nuclear. He's not a nuclear expert, and so he said, I want to spin up on all these nuclear topics, and so he said, let me start a podcast, and I'll go interview all the nuclear experts at all, all the people actually know how to build like nuclear plants and how this stuff works and he's like boy i don't know if they'll talk to me because i'm just a kid and i don't know whether they'll and he said they were just he said uniformly they've just been totally shocked that anybody wants to talk to them at all <laughs> <laughs> they're just like oh my god like we've never been invited on a podcast before nobody's ever want nobody ever wants to hear from us and so he said he's had like a hundred percent hit rate of all the real experts oh and so his, if you listen to his it takes you through like all this stuff in detail okay titans yeah. of nuclear I'm, yeah. I'm gonna get on that so the the it seems like the problem is there's a bottleneck between information and this idea that people have of what nuclear power is that needs to be bridged we need to figure out how to get to people's heads that what we're talking about when you talk about nuclear power is a very small amount of disasters where a large amount of nuclear reactors and you're dealing with very old technology as opposed to what is possible and, and virtually no deaths that's wild. And an overwhelmingly better like, trade-off versus any other form of energy. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, look, that's, that's the argument. I think it's quite straightforward. My, my experience with human beings is that they only react to crises. Um, and mm. so that's why I say, like, I don't think logical arguments sell. So I, I think it's, 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 a, it's, it's probably some sort of crisis. And, you know, the Russia crisis is one opening. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, it would be great to see leadership from somebody in power to be able to take advantage of that. Um, maybe that'll happen in Europe. Um, and then, um, yeah, the other would be if, if people actually get, like, if people actually get worried enough about global warming, and people say they're worried about global warming, but not enough to 
do this. And so mm. maybe, I don't know, maybe we just need higher temperatures and then people will take this seriously. Yeah. So it, it may just need to get bad. Do you have any concerns about this uh, this movement towards electric cars and electric vehicles that we are going to run out of batteries? We're going mm. to run out of raw material to make batteries. And what that could that could be responsible for a lot of strip mining, a lot of very environmentally damaging practices that we use right now to acquire, and also that this could be done by other countries, of course, that are not nearly as environmentally conscious or concerned. Right. So, so technically, fun fact, we never actually run out of any natural resource. We've, we've never run out of natural resource in human history, right? Because what happens is the price rises. Right. The price rises way in advance of running out of the resource. And then basically whatever that is, using that resource becomes non-economical. And then either we have to find an alternative way to do that thing or, we, or, or at some point we just stop doing it. And so I don't think the risk is running out of lithium. I think the risk is not being able to get enough lithium to be able to do it at prices that people can pay for the cars. Um, and then there's, there's other issues, which is where does the lithium come from? Uh, I'll just give you an example. Um, you know, people talk about a lot, of, a, lot of company, a lot of companies are doing a lot of posturing right now on their morality. Um, one of the things that all electronic devices have in common, your phone, your Tesla, um, your, you know, your iPhone, they all have in common. They all contain not just lithium, they also contain cobalt. Um, mm. If you look into where cobalt is mined, it's not a pretty picture. Right. You know, it's child slaves in the Congo. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we kind of all gloss it over because we need the cobalt. Um, and so maybe there should be more, you know, maybe we should go be, be maybe we should be like much more actively investigating, for example, mining in the U.S. Like, you know, may, maybe the concept, you know, as you know, there's a big anti-mining, anti-natural resource development culture in the U.S. and the political system right now. As a consequence, we kind of outsource all these conundrums to other countries. It maybe, is. Maybe we should be doing it here. Well, that, that was my question about it. it is fascinating to me that there is not a single U.S. developed and implemented cell phone, yeah. that we don't have a cell phone that's put together by people that get paid a fair wage with health insurance and benefits and everything we we make i mean when when we buy an iphone you're buying it from foxconn right foxconn's constructing it in, in app, these apple you know contracted factories where they have nets around the buildings to keep people from jumping off the roof and people are working inhumane hours for a pittance i mean it's like a, a tiny amount of money in comparison to what we get paid here in america why is that like is that because we want Apple to make the highest amount of profit, and we don't give a shit about human life. We only pay at Lyft service. Like, why is it? Why haven't they done this in America? Well, here's where I would. I think I would actually agree. Here's an environmentalist argument. I think I might agree with, which basically is, it's very easy for so-called first world or developed countries to sort of outsource problems to developing countries, right? right? And so, just as an example, take carbon emissions for a second. And we'll come back to iPhones. Carbon emissions in the U.S. are actually declining. Like we, we actually, there's, there's all this like animation over the Paris Accords or whatever. But like if you look, carbon emissions in the U.S. have been falling now for like quite a while. Why is that? Well, there's a bunch of theories as to why that is. Some people point to you know regulations. Some people point to technological advances. For example, mo modern internal combustion cars emit a lot less. They have catalytic converters now. They emit a lot less uh, CO2. Um, but maybe one of the big reasons is we've outsourced heavy industry to other countries, <laughs> right? Mm. And so all of the factories with the smokestacks, um. right, and all the mining operations and all the things that generate, and by the way, a lot of, you know, mass agriculture that generates emissions and so forth, like we've, we've, we've in a globalized world, we've outsourced that, right? And if you look at, if you look at emissions in China, they've gone through the roof, right? Mm. And so, so maybe what we've done is we've just taken the dirty economic activity and we've moved it over there, and then we've kind of gone... 
Yeah. You know, look it, how good we're doing. Yeah, it's yeah, we're great. Yeah. We're great. Now they you know, they're awful. They have all kinds of problems, but we're, you know, we're Meanwhile, great. Meanwhile, we so, are the consumer that fuels yeah, their awful problems. We created yeah, we created it's a little bit like the debate about like, you know, you know, so sort of the the drug trade in countries like Mexico and Colombia, right? Which is how much how much of that is induced by you know, American demand. Yeah. You know, for things like cocaine. So, yeah, so it's it's this this is where the the morality questions get trickier I think than they look. Yeah. Which is like what have we actually done? Now there's another argument on the on the uh, I'll defend Foxconn. There's an argument on the other side of this that actually no it's it's good that we've done this from an overall human welfare standpoint because if you don't like the foxconn jobs you would really hate the jobs that they would have been doing instead mm. right the, the the only thing worse than working in a sweatshop is is you know scavenging in a in a um, you know scavenging in a dumper doing subsistence farming or being a prostitute right and so you know maybe you know even what we would consider to be low end and unacceptably difficult and dangerous manufacturing jobs may still be better than the jobs that existed prior to that and so mm. again there's a different morality argument you can have there again it's a little bit trickier than it looks at first blush so, I, I find we're, I go through this because I find we're in an era where a lot of people, including a lot of people in my business, are making these very flash cut moral judgments on what's good and what's bad. Right. And I find when I peel these things back, it's like, well, it's not quite that simple. Interesting. Um, with the implementation of modern nuclear power, is it possible to manufacture cell phones in the United States? Well, anything that drops the cost of energy all of a sudden is really good for domestic yeah. manufacturing, for sure. And um, do so without the environmental impact. Yeah. Well, number one, so dropping the price of energy. Energy is a huge part of any manufacturing process, huge cost thing. And so if you had basically unlimited free energy from nukes, you, you all of a sudden would have a lot, a lot more options for manufacturing in the U.S. And then the other is, look, we have, we have you know, robotics, the, the AI conversation. Like, we, you know, if you built new manufacturing plants from scratch in the U.S., they would be a lot more automated. Um, and so you'd have, you know, assembly lines of robots doing things. Um, and then you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have the jobs that you know, people don't want to have. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, you know, you could do those things. There's actually a big point. This isn't happening with phones. This is happening with chips. Um, so this is one of the actual positive things happening right now, which is there's a big push underway from both the U.S. tech industry and actually the government, to give them the credit, uh, to bring chip manufacturing back to the U.S. Um, and there's a there's a, a build. Intel is the company leading the charge on this in the U.S. And there's a build out of a whole bunch of new, you know, these huge fifty billion dollar you know, uh, chip manufacturing plants that'll happen in the U.S. Well, was a lot of that motivated by the supply chain crisis? Yeah. One of the big issues was cars couldn't yeah. get chips. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, the China, when the Chinese shut down for COVID, all of a sudden the cars can't get chips. Um, and then and then look also just greater geopolitical conflict. You know, like one D, people in D.C. don't agree on much, but one of them is we don't really want to be as dependent on China as we are today. Right. And so we want to bring um, and then. And, you know, there's Taiwan exposure. A lot of chips are actually made in Taiwan, and there's a lot of stress and tension around Taiwan. So Clearly, yeah. if we get chips manufactured back in the U.S., we not only solve these practical issues, we might also have more strategic leverage. We might not be as dependent on China. So, so the good news is that's happening. And, and let me just say, like, if that happens successfully, maybe that sets a model. To your point, maybe that's a great example to then start doing that in all these other sectors. What, what, el what else could be done to improve upon, like, whatever problems that have been uncovered during this COVID crisis and during the supply chain shutdown? Like, that, it seems like a lot of our problems is that we need to bring stuff into this country. We're not making enough to be self-sustainable. Mm -hmm. So that's one. I would give you another big one, though. COVID has surfaced a problem that we always had and we now have a new answer to, which is the problem of basically for thousands of years, young people have had to move into a small number of major cities to have access to the best opportunities. Right. And so and by Silicon Valley is a great example of this. If yeah. you've been a young person from anywhere in the world and you want to work in the tech industry and you want to be on, on the leading edge, you had to move to you figure you had to figure out a way to get to California, get to Silicon Valley. And if you couldn't, you probably it was hard for you to be part of it. 
And then, you know, the areas, the, the cities that have this kind of, they call these superstar cities, the cities that have these sort of superstar economics, everybody wants to live there, they end up with these politics where they don't want you to ever build new housing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they never build new roads. The quality of life goes straight downhill. And you know everything becomes super expensive, and they and they they don't and they don't fix it, and they don't fix it because they don't have to fix it because everybody wants to move there and everything is great and taxes are through the roof and everything is fantastic. Um, and so, one of the huge positive changes happening right now is the fact that remote work worked as well as it did when the COVID lockdowns kicked in and all these companies sent all their employees home and everything just kept working, which is kind of a miracle. Yeah, right. Has caused a lot of companies, including a lot of our startups, to think about how should com- should companies actually be all based in a place like Northern California or should they actually be spread out all over the country or all over the world, right? And and, and so, and, the, and if you think about the, the, the gains from that, one is all of the economic benefits of being like Silicon Valley in tech or Hollywood in entertainment, like maybe those gains should be able to be spread out across more of the country and more of the country should be able to participate, right? And then by the way, the people involved, like maybe they shouldn't have to move. Maybe they should be able to live where they grew up if they want to continue to be part of their community. Mm. Or maybe they should want to be able to live where their you know extended family is. Yeah. Or maybe they should want to live someplace with a lot of natural beauty or someplace where they want to contribute to, uh, you know, philanthropically to local community or what, whatever other decision they have for why they might want to live someplace. They can now live in a different place and they can have still access to the best jobs. And it seems like with these technologies like Zoom yep. and FaceTime and all these different things that people are using to try to simulate being there, the, the actual physical need to be there, if you don't have a job where you actually have to pick things up and move them around, right. it doesn't really right. seem like it's necessary. Yeah. So some exist. big companies are having some trouble with this right now because they're so used to running with everybody in the same place. And so there's a lot of CEOs grappling with, like, how do we have collaboration happen, creativity happen? Right. If I'm creating, writing, you know, creating a movie or something, like how do I actually do it if people aren't in the same room? But a lot of the new startups, like they, they're getting built from scratch to be remote, um, and they just have this, this new way of operating, and it might be a better way of operating. But there is some benefit for people being in the room and spitballing yeah. together and coming up with ideas and developing community. Yeah. There's some benefit to that that yeah. I think it gets lost with remote work. But th- again, this is coming from a guy who doesn't have a job. Yeah. So, so. And, and by the way, has a very nice office yeah. facility. Yeah. Um, so our, our firm runs, we now run, uh, we were a single office firm. Everybody was in our firm 20, 20, basically all, all, all the time. Um, we now run a primarily remote virtual mode of operation, but we have offsites frequently, right? So we're, we're basically, what we're doing is we're basically taking money we would have spent on real estate and we're spending it instead on travel and then on, on offsites, right? And by, by, by offsites, offsite, you mean like, uh, like, uh, like basically fly everybody, yeah, we'll fly everybody into a hotel or resort. You know, for three days, maybe some of them with families, maybe some of them just 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 with and you the have people. a vacation together. Exactly right, nice. and and like real bonding, right? Like right. real have like a good time have, together. Have a good time together. Have lots of free time to get to know each other. Yeah. Go on hikes. Have long dinners. Right. right, parties, fire on the beach, like whatever it is. Have people really be able to spend time together. How much of a benefit do you think there is in that? A lot. Yeah, a lot. Well, and then what you do is you kind of charge people up with the social bonding, right? And then they can then they can then go home and they can be remote for six weeks or eight weeks, and and they still feel connected, and they're you know talking to everybody online mm. and then you bring them right right when they start to fray when it, right when it starts to feel like they're getting isolated again you bring them all back together again interesting yeah and the the benefit of that bonding is like as a, a person who runs a company like how do you think of that do you think oh it makes people feel good about working there and so they are more enthusiastic about work and like how do you uh, how do you weigh that out 
it's to, it's to form and reinforce the cult, ah. <laughs> right? So it's it's the religion of the company religion, right? Yeah, which we don't we don't call it that, but that you know that's what it is. And so it's it's to get it's to get that sense of it's that sense of community, it's that sense of sort of group cohesion that like we're we're all in this together. I'm, I'm not just an individual. I'm not a mercenary. I'm a member of a group. We have a mission. The mission is bigger than each each of us individually. And um, do you have like little struggle sessions where you let people air their gripes and some companies have those. <laughs> we're not so hot on those. We have other ways to do deal with that kind of thing. Um, more what we're tra- we're trying to do is it's more it's brainstorming. So like create creativity. Like there's there's definitely a role for in person. Um, and then it's for all of the like you know it's like employee onboarding. Um, it's for training. Um, it's for um, this, you know, planning, right? It's for, for for all the things where you really want people like thinking hard in a, in a group, mm-hmm. do all those things. But but a lot of it is just the bonding. Like we're, like Ben and I run, run our firm. Like we're we're constantly trying to take, we're trying to take agenda items off the, the off the sheet uh, every time because we're trying to have people just have more time to get to know each other. How do you weed out young people that have been indoctrinated into a certain ideology? And they think that these struggle sessions should be mandatory, and they think that you know there's a certain language that they need to use, and there's a way they need to communicate, and there's certain expectations they have of the company to the point where they start putting demands upon their own employers. Yeah. So the big thing you do, I think, and this is what we try to do, is you basically declare what your values are, right? So you want to be like your company. You want to be very upfront, and, and you want to basically say, here's what we stand for. And so we we, we do we do this, um, in, you know, in a couple different ways. For example, you know, one of our core values um, is that we think that technology is a positive for the world, right? And if you're the kind of person who wants to be a technology critic, like that's just inconsistent with our values. We don't we don't employ technology critics. Have many other places that they can work. Like technology, how so in, in terms of technology critic? Like what do you mean by oh, that? just like you know the kinds of people who want to go online or want to write articles or whatever about how evil all the technologists are and how evil Elon is and how evil capitalism is and mm-hmm. like all this stuff. Um, you know, there's lots of other places. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of other things. Counterproductive. Think, counterproductive. It's just, it's inconsistent with our values. Like right. we're, we have, we're optimistic about the impact of technology on the future. Um, another is, you know, we have an understanding of diversity that says that people actually are going to feel included. Like they're actually going to feel like they're all they're, they're part of a of, of a mission in a group that's larger than themselves. Everyone, regardless. Yeah, regardless, and that they're not going to feel like they're different or better or worse, and that they have to prove themselves. And it's they, a meritocracy. Yeah, it's a meritocracy, and that they don't have to take. You know, they don't have to. We're not going to have politics in the workplace in the sense of they're not going to have to take. They're not going to be under any pressure to either express their political views or deny that they have the political views, or pretend to agree with political views they don't agree with. You know, we're we're just not going to. That's just not part of what we do. We're, we're mission driven against our mission, not all of the other missions. You can pursue all the other missions in your in your free time. Do you think the pursuing of a lot of those other missions is a distraction? And that yeah, enormously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it can really run away, and that you know that that is a big problem in a lot of these companies now. But you can define your company, you can define your culture, and basically say that's not what we're about. We're about our mission, and then you just you basically broadcast that right up front, and you basically say, look, you are not going to be happy working here, and by the way, you're not going to last very long working here. Yeah, right. If if you if you have a view contrary to that. So you've kind of recognized the problem in advance and established sort of an ethic for the company that weeds that out so early. So everything, everything like that, there's this concept of economics called adverse selection. So there's sort of adverse selection, and then there's the other side, positive selection. So adverse, adverse selection is when you attract the worst, right? And positive selection is when you attract the best, right? And, and every, every formation of any group, it's always positive selection or adverse selection. It, 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 I would even say it's a little bit of like if you like put on a show, it's like depending on how you market the show and how you price it and where you locate it, you're going to attract in a certain kind of crowd. You're going to dissuade another kind of crowd. Like there's always some process of sort of attra- attraction and, and, and selection. Um, you know, the, the, the enemy is always adverse selection. The enemy is sort of having a set of preconditions that cause the wrong people to opt into something. 
you know, what you're always shooting for is positive selection. You're trying to actually attract the right people. You know, you're trying to basically put out the messages in such a way that by the time they show up, they've self-selected into what you're trying to do. Do you have most of this is that? Do you have other CEOs that contact you and go, "Hey, we've got a fucking problem here. How oh, yeah. do how did yeah. you guys do this?" Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, so I'll just give you an example. A public example is Coinbase. Um, you know, it's a company that's now been all the way through this, and it's a company we've been involved with for a, for a long time. And you know, that that's a very public case of a CEO who basically declared that you know he had hit a point where he wasn't willing to tolerate politics in the workplace. And then yes. he, he did this. He was the he was the first of these that kind of did this. We're going to be mission driven. Our mission is uh, open. What he's it's a cryptocurrency company said. Our mission is an open global financial system that everybody can participate in. Um, and he said, "Look, there are many other good missions in the world. You can pursue those in your own time, uh, or go to other companies to do so that." So, was it a, a system where their activists had infiltrated yeah. the company? And yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you'd say in some cases it's full on activists. In a lot of cases, it's just like a level of activation on non let's just say non-core issues. It's a level of, of sort of internal activation on issues. You have a certain number of people who get fired up. You mm. have other people who feel like they have to go along. You have other people who feel like they now can't express themselves. You have other people who feel like they have to lie to fit in. Right. And, it, it, and it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it, the conclusion he reached was it was destructive to trust. It was causing people in the company to not trust each other, not like each other, not be able to work on the core problems that the company exists to do. And so he, anyway, he, he did a, like a best case scenario on this. He just said, look, he, he actually did it in two parts. He said, first of all, this is not how we're going to operate going forward. And then he said, I realize that there are people in my company that I did not set this rule for before who will feel like I'm changing. I'm pulling the rug out from under them and saying they can't do things they thought they could do. And I'm going to give them a very generous severance package and help them find their next job. Kick rocks. <laughs> Fuck out of here. <laughs> well, but with, with like, he did a very, yes. he did like a you know, six month severance package, That's some, something nice. on that order, and to, to make it really easy for people to be able to get the, you know, in healthcare and like deal with all those issues. And almost incentivize them. Yeah, incentive, yeah, incentive, right. yeah basically yeah. say, look, you're not going to like it here. You're right. not going to like it here. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to not, you know, we're going to be telling you all this, you know, to stop doing all these things. You're, you're, you're not going to get promoted. Um, and so you're gonna, definitely going to be better off somewhere else. And Do you think going forward that's going to be what more companies utilize or that they implement a strategy like that? Because it's yeah. ultimately yeah. for your bottom line, it's yeah. got to be detrimental to have people so energized about so-called activism that it's taking away the energy that they would have yeah. towards getting – what whatever the mission of the company is done. Yeah, so the, the way we look at it is basically, look, it is so hard to make any business work, period, right? Like to get a group of, especially from scratch, a startup, to get a group of people together from scratch to build something new against a, what is basically a wall of sort of start out with indif indifference and skepticism and then ultimately like pitch battles with big existing companies. Like it's in other startups, like it's so hard to get one of these things to work. It's so hard to get everybody to just even agree to what to do to do that. Right to what you know? What is the what is the mission of this company? How are we going to go do this? To do that, you need to have like all hands on deck. You need to have everybody with a common view. A lot of what you do as a manager in those companies is try to get everybody to a common view of mission. You, you, you're trying to build a cult. You're trying to build. Right. A, you're trying to build a sense of camaraderie, a sense of cohesion, right? Just like you would be trying to do in a military unit or in anything else, where you need people to be able to execute against a common goal. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, any anything that chews anything that chews away at that, anything that undermines trust and causes you know un, you know causes people to feel like they're under pressure under you know various forms of unhappiness, um, you know other 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 missions that the company has somehow taken out along the way that aren't related to the business, yeah, that that just all kind of chews away at the ability for the company. And, and then the twist is that in our society, the companies that are the most politicized are also generally like the, have the strongest monopolies. Right. And so, like the, Google. for example, yeah. <laughs> right. And so this is what we always tell people is like, look, you, the problem with using a company like Google or any other like large established company like that. And because people look at that and they say, well, whatever Google does is what we should do. It's like, well, start with a search monopoly. 
right? Start life, number one, with the search monopoly, the best business model of all time, $100 billion in free cash flow. Then you can have whatever culture you want. Right. Right. But all that stuff didn't cause the search monopoly. Like, what caused the search monopoly was like building a great product and taking it to market. And that's what we need to do. Uh, and so that, that, this is where more CEOs are getting to. Now, having said that, the CEOs who are willing to do this are still few and far between. The leader, this is, yeah. Leadership is rare in our time, um, and I would give the CEOs who are willing to take this on a lot of credit, and I would say a lot of them aren't there yet. A lot, a lot of them must be terrified, too, yeah. because it's so, the, these ideologies are so prevalent, and these yeah. religions, as you would say, are so strong. Yeah. Brian got so an example. Brian, CEO of Coinbase, got deluged with emails from other CEOs. You know, in the in the weeks that followed, and they were basically all like, "Wow, that's great! I wish I could do that at my company." A wish, right? Do you think that it would be more <laughs> prevalent in the future? That more, yeah. yeah so they're going to realize that they're going to have to. Well, things like Netflix. Netflix realized that when their stock dropped radically. They realized that a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who's an executive at Netflix, and yeah. she was telling me uh, the the struggles that they go through, and it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's like they essentially hired activists yeah. who are. More, she pulled this person into uh, her office to have a discussion with them, and the person said, "How do I know you're not the enemy?" Yeah, right. That's right. And she's like, "I'm your fucking boss." <laughs> right. Like, right. what are you talking about? Right. That person wound up getting fired ultimately, eventually. Yeah. But I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. Imagine that kind of. Uh, an attitude 20 years ago you yeah. could never imagine it yeah. it would would not take place yeah and there's been yeah there's a there's been a collapse in i would say trust and authority in managers there's been a collapse in leadership exhibited by managers mm. it has not gone well it's been a bad experiment and there's a lot of fear and do you think and this is accentuated by social media oh yeah for sure well yeah. it's all social media but it's also, it's also the, ma the mainstream media the classic media like look so what's the fear well a big part of the fear is that there's gonna you're then gonna deal with you know you're gonna have now an ex-employee who hates you is gonna go public right right but is that and it's, also the it's cover of Time Magazine stuff, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, now, you know, what drives what goes in the cover of Time Magazine these days is apparently it's a lot of social media. But still, it's like all of a sudden 60 Minutes is doing a hit piece on you. Like it, it, right. But, but is the problem that these companies don't have ability to defend themselves and express themselves on broad scale? Well, they could choose to. I mean, right. th this is. But the, how would they do that? They they need to they need to choose they need to choose to they need to decide they need to decide that they need to decide they need to have a crisis they they, they need to decide that the status quo is so bad that they're going to deal with the flack involved in getting to the other side of the of, of the bridge. But they would also have to have a platform that's really large, yeah, well, where it can yeah. be distributed so they it could mitigate any sort of incorrect or biased hit piece on them. Yeah. And look, they have to be willing to tell their story. Right? Yes. And they have to be willing to come out in public and say, look, here's what we believe. Here's why we do things. And that's what the CEO of Coinbase has done. Yeah, he's done that. Yes. He's a very brave guy. Um, What's his name again? Brian Armstrong. Fuck yeah, Brian Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're <laughs> so very proud. that brings me to crypto. Yes. What Do you have a general feeling about crypto? Yeah. I'm sure you have very strong opinions. Yeah, very strong opinions, yeah. So let me start by saying we okay. don't we don't do we don't do price forecasting. Um, so we don't do price price forecasting when it's on the way up. We don't do price forecasting when it's on the way down. I have no idea what the prices are going to be. We never recommend people buy anything. Like we're not trying to get people to buy anything. I'm not marketing anything. Right. So nothing I say will should be attributed in any way to like oh Mark said you know buy buy this or don't yes. buy that. None of that. Um, and, and in fact, we basically, in the way our business works is we basically ignore all the short-term stuff. We, we sort of invest over a 10-year horizon is kind of our, our, our kind of base, base thing that we do. Um, and so we're, yeah, we're, we have a big program in this and we're, we're charging ahead with the program. What are your feelings about the, the prevalence of, I mean, even these sort of novel coins or novelty coins and these, the, the idea that you could sort of establish a currency for your business? 
that's like you know there was talk about meta doing some sort of a, a meta coin right. you know and that a company could do that google could do a google coin yeah. and they could essentially not just be an enormous company with a wide influence but also literally have their own economy yeah what what do you think about that? Well, so this has happened before. This is a, this is there's a tradition of this, and so the frequent flyer miles are like a, a great example of this, right? In fact, to the point where you have credit cards that give you you know frequent flyer mm. miles to sort of uh, sort of cash back. So, yeah. so companies have that. Um, you may remember from the 70s, um, it was uh, more common in the old days, but there used to be these things called like A and P stamps. There used to be these like saving stamps you'd get, and you go to the supermarket and you buy a certain amount, and they give you these stamps. You could spend the stamps in different things or send them in. Okay. So there, there were there were sort of private so-called script kind of currency issued by companies in that form. Um, then there's all these games that have in-game currency, right? Mm -hmm. And so you play one of these games like World of Warcraft or whatever, and you have the in-game currency, and sometimes it can be converted back into dollars, and sometimes it can't, and, and right. so forth. And so yeah, so there, there's been a long tradition of companies basically developing internal economies like this, and then having their customers kind of cut in in some way. And yeah, that's for sure something that they can do with this technology. When you compare fiat currency with these emerging digital currencies, do you think that these digital currencies, di digital currencies, have solutions to some of the problems of traditional money? And do you think that this is where we're going to move forward towards that, that digital currencies of the future? So I'm not an absolute. I'm not an absolutist on this. I, so I don't think this is a world in which we cut over from national currencies to cryptocurrencies. Um, I think national currencies continue to be very important. Um, the, the big thing about a national national currency to me, the the thing that I think gives it real, because you know national currencies are no longer backed by you know gold or silver right. or anything. They're 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 fiat. They're fiat. They're paper. The thing that really gives them value, in my view, um, is basically that it's it's the form of taxation. Right, and so if the government basically is going to legally require you to turn over a third of your income every year, they're going to require you to do that. Not only in the abstract, they're going to require you to do that in that specific currency. Right? Yeah. I can only pay the IRS in dollars. I can't do it in Japanese yen or euros. Well, what do you do? Or, or, you, or Bitcoin? And if so you yeah. function completely in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you would. You if if you as an individual function completely in Bitcoin, then you would just convert at the end of the year to be able to pay your taxes. You convert into dollars for the purpose of paying your taxes. Could you pay your dollar? Could you pay your taxes right now when it's worth almost nothing? <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> Depends. I mean, how does that work? Well, the good, the good, the good, the good news is, if your income is crypto, then you have a lot less income this year too. So, but what isn't there a fear that the government would choose to tax you at the highest point? Hmm. Like is it? Could, oh, is it? yeah. Well, there's so actually Bitcoin. So there's this is actually an issue in the policy right now. It's a, a big dispute, which is actually is is something like Bitcoin. Is it money or is it a, is it a, is it a commodity? Right? Is it mm. and, and and so and right now actually I, I believe this is still the case. I think trading a cryptocurrency profits for trading cryptocurrency. I think are all short term gains. Mm. Um, I, th I think they always get you on short-term gains because they classify as something. I'm not a – I have to go read back up on this. But um, th this is a hot issue in kind of how this stuff should be taxed, and there will be big – there are big policy debates about that today. Where, do you, but there's so many of them. Isn't that part of the, the issue? There's so many currencies, and they're all sort of vying for – Legitimacy. Yeah, but that's also. I mean, it's, it's good news, bad news. It's also a big plus. It, it, the, it's also a big plus in the following way: like we have a technology starting in two thousand nine, right? Sort of out of nowhere. There, there is a 
prehistory to it, but really the big breakthrough was Bitcoin in 2009, the Bitcoin white paper. We have this new technology to do cryptocurrencies, to do blockchains. And it's, it's, it's this new technology that we didn't have that all of a sudden we have. And we're basically in, we're now 13 years into the process of a lot of really smart engineers and entrepreneurs trying to figure out what that means and what they can build with it. And that talk technology is blockchain? Blockchain, yeah. At its core, it's the idea of a blockchain, which is basically like an internet-wide database that's able to record ownership and all these you know, attributes of different kinds of objects, physical objects and digital objects. And how objects. much of an issue is fraud and theft and, yeah. and, and infiltration of these networks? Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an issue for sure. I mean, there's basically, the, I think the way to think about that is anytime there's an economic system, there's some for, form of fraud or theft against it. Um, you know, the example I always like to use is um, there. Remember, if you remember the like saga of like John Dillinger, um, you know, and um, and uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Like when 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 the car was invented, all of a sudden it created a new kind of bank robbery, right? Right, because there were banks, and then they had money in the bank, and then all of a sudden people had the car, and then they had the Tommy gun, which was the other new technology they brought back from mm. World War One. And then there were this run of, oh, my God, banks aren't safe anymore because John Dillinger and his gang are going to come to town and they're going to rob your bank and take all your money. Right. And that led to the creation of the FBI. That was the original reason for the creation of the FBI. Uh. And at the time, it was like this huge panic. It's like, oh, my God, banks aren't going to work anymore because of all these criminals with cars and guns. And so it's it's basically it's, – it's like anything. It's like when, when there's economic opportunity, somebody's going to try to take advantage of it. There's going to be – people are going to try criminal acts. People are going to try to steal stuff. And then you, you basically you're, – you're always in any system like that. You're in a cat and mouse game against the bad guys, which, which is basically what this industry is doing right now. What, what is causing this massive dip in cryptocurrency currently? Oh, I have no idea. You have no idea? No, cl- no clue. Um, it's just happening? The market is – so <laughs> the theory of financial markets. So um, this goes back to the logic and motion stuff we were talking about earlier. So one view of financial markets, like the way that they're supposed to work is it's supposed to be lots of smart people sitting around doing math and calculating and figuring out this is fair value and that's fair value and whatever. Like it's all a very like mechanical, like smart, logical process. Okay. And then there's reality. And reality is people are like super emotional. Um, and then, and then emo- emotionality cascades. And so some mm. people start to get upset and then a lot more people get upset or some people start to get euphoric. A lot more people get euphoric. Is now a good time to like jump in I have when no people I- are in full panic? I have no idea. Here, here's, uh, I like how you're like avoiding here's, that. I'm going to avoid that. I'm very good at, I'm very, <laughs> very, very, very good at avoiding this question. Um, so Ben Graham is sort of the godfather of stock market investing. Ben Graham was Warren Buffett's mentor and kind of the guy who defined modern stock investing. And Ben Graham used this metaphor in his book 100 years ago. And he said, look, you need to think about financial markets. And he was talking about the stock market, but the same thing's true for crypto. He said, you think about it, basically think about it as if it's a person and, and call it Mr. Market. And he said, the most important thing to realize about Mr. Market is he's manic depressive. Like he's really screwed up, <laughs> right? And he has like all kinds of crazy impulses and he has like good days and bad days. And some days like his family hates him. And some days he's like, you know, it's, it's whatever, like, his life is chaos. Um, and basically, every day, Mr. Market shows up in the market and basically offers to sell you things at a certain price or buy things from you at a certain price, but he's manic depressive. And so the same thing on different days, he might be willing to buy or sell at different prices. And you can spend a lot of time, if you want to, trying to understand what's happening in his head. But he's like, you know, it's like trying to understand what's happening inside the head of a crazy person. Like, mm. it's probably not a good use of time. Um, instead, you should just assume that he's nuts. And then what you do is you make your decisions about what you think things are worth and when you're willing to trade. And you do that on according to your principles, not his principles. And so that that, that would be the metaphor that I encourage people to think about. Like, these markets are just nuts. There's a thousand different reasons why the prices go up and down. I don't have any idea. Um, the core question is, what's the substance, right? What's right. what's real? What's what's actually legitimately useful and valuable, right? And, and that's and that's what we spend all of our time focusing on. So when you sp- you focus on that, what what do you find when you say what is what is valuable? 
Like, what what are you looking towards? Are you looking towards long-term stability? Are you looking towards public interest in a, in a thing? Like, what, how do you how do you decide what's valuable? Yeah, so we, our lens is, is venture capital. We, we look at everything through the lens of technology. And so we, we look at the lens of these things. We, we only invest in things that we think are significant technological breakthroughs. So if somebody comes out with an alter, just an alternative to Bitcoin or whatever, and even if it's a good idea, bad idea, that's not what we do. Um, what we do is we're looking for technological change. Um, and so we're looking, and basically what that means is the world's smartest engineers developing some new capability that wasn't possible before, and then building some kind of project or effort or company right around that. And then we invest. And then we only think long term. We only think in terms of 10 years, 15 years, longer. Um, and the reason for that is big technological changes take time, right? It, right. it, it takes time to get these things right, right? Um, um, and so th- that that's our framework. We spend all day long talking to the smartest engineers we can find, talking to the smartest founders we can find who are organizing those engineers into, into projects or companies. Um, and then we, you know, we, we try to back every single one of those that we can find. And how do you and then, establish and this then, network? And then we basically we put the we put the we put the money up. We basically lock the money up. We you right. know, we raise money from our investors. We lock that money up for like a decade, and then we, we try to help these projects succeed. And then hopefully at the end of whatever the period of time is, it, you know, it's worth more than we invested. But we're not, you know, we're not trading. We're not in and out of these things. We're not we're not gaming the prices. And how do you develop these networks where you are in touch with all these engineers and do find these technologies that are valuable? So that's the core emotion. So the the venture for the firm I'm a part of now we're up to about 400 people. This is kind of what this organization does. We've got about 25 investing partners. This is what they do. They spend all day basically. We we spend all day basically talking to talking to founders, talking to engineers. You know, a lot a lot of us grew up in the industry, so a lot of us have like actual hands-on experience having done that. Or, and then a lot of our partners have been, you know, very involved in these projects uh, over time. Um, it's a positive selection. I mentioned adverse selection, positive selection. We're trying to attract in this. We want the smartest people to come talk to us. Yeah. We want the other people, hopefully, to not come talk to us. Um, we do a lot of we call outbound. We do a lot of marketing. We communicate a lot in public. It's you know, one of the reasons I'm here today is just like we, we want to have a voice that's in the outside world, basically saying, here's who we are. Here's what we stand for. Here are the kinds of projects we work on. Here are our values. Right. A good example. The reason I told the Coinbase story of what Brian did is because, like that, that's part of our. Like we think that's good that he did that. Yeah. Other, other venture firms might think that's bad, right? But like, if you're the kind of founder who thinks that's good, then we're going to be a very good partner for you, mm. right? And then we spend a lot of time in the details, like working through the. We have a lot of engineers, you know, working for us. A lot of us have engineering degrees, and so we spend a lot of time working through the details. Mark, you're a fascinating guy. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm, I'm really glad we did it. Good. Can we do it again? Sure, of course. Let's do it again. Yes. Thank you very Thanks, much. Man. Thank you very much for being here. I really, really enjoyed this. Good. All right. Anything else? Want to give people your social media or anything? Do you want to do that? You want to get inundated by dick pics? Or? I am all good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's such an inviting proposition. Maybe, maybe tell you what. Maybe they could use they could use the AI art. And they could, uh, yeah, yeah to use do, some to, AI to, art. To, to do some, some AI to do some, art. To do some dick pics. Thank you very much. Okay. 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 Bye, everybody. Bye.